and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. I'm Steve Henderson, and I'm joined, as ever, by Mr. Ben Mitchell. Hello, Ben. How are you? I'm smashing as ever, Stephen. Good, good, good. Welcome back to the world of podcasting. It's been another two months. And I think the writing's on the wall that this will be the last Squiggly Podcast. Not quite. I think the two months gaps between each episode is getting a bit silly. Mm-hmm. So uh, what we will be doing in the near future is uh, a more streamlined version, more quick and to the point and such. So people won't have to wait quite as long, probably with one guest per episode, but we'll, we'll see which way the wind blows. But uh, we figured we'd go out with a bang and uh, do one last big gigantic one uh, in keeping with the preceding 29 episodes that we've done so far over the last three years. And what a lineup we have for you. It's uh, three amazing talents from the world of animation. We have Tom Moore, who's the uh, co-founder of Cartoon Saloon and his new film Song of the Sea, which has been out in various territories for a good long while, finally is out in the UK this week. So looking forward to hearing more from him. We have Adam Elliott, Um, One of my absolute all-time favorite animators and storytellers. He's been on the podcast before, but he has since made a new film, much to our mutual delight, Mm -hmm. and we'll be talking more about Ernie Biscuit later on. Another animator to return to the uh, world of short filmmaking is Cordell Barker, the Canadian animator who brought us such films as Strange Invaders and The Cat Came Back. He has a new film called If I Was God. What a show. So let's not waste any more time with the uh, preamble. Let's just dive right in, shall we? Before we move on to our our guestesses and such, Stephen, what's exciting you about the world of animation? Everything excites me about the world of animation, Ben. I think I've got a problem. It's an exciting business. An exciting business. Shows and moving pictures and then remaking the same television shows and moving pictures and then remaking the same (laughs) mother of god like it became like a joke yeah like a few months ago how ridiculous the reboot season was and now i swear it's actually like i don't know people are listening in and they're like okay what can we pull out now Am I crazy? Is it just... It, it really does seem like this year has been stupid. It, it has. It, it's been absolutely ridiculous, the uh, the amount of remakes. I mean, with, with, with some of have, have been successful um, and some not so successful. The reason that they are doing the remakes is very transparent. It's because it's a safe market and they know that, that parents will show their children the likes of the Clangos and such like that. Um you know, and the Clangers is quite a faithful remake. I'm quite, you know, just using that as an example, as a good example rather. But you do feel quite downhearted to think that, you know, two years ago we got given this tax break, and is this the best we can do? You know, we got given this tax break, and we were thinking, well, this is our chance to shine. It's our chance to show the world what British animation is all about again. And we are still making the shows. We are still making quality shows. Oh, we're not making anything original anymore. We're not sort of... It's difficult to watch the TV and see all these remakes. Most disappointingly is is the knowledge that actually a lot of people are trying to do something new and they're just not getting past the sort of crucial stage. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've been involved with recently is having a little look at some um, pilot pitches for various television shows. A couple of networks have these rolling uh, solicitations for um, you know, new content, new ideas. Some of them have been really good. Mm-hmm. And 
if any original ideas are getting sort of picked up, they're always the really, really sort of play it safe options that don't push any boundaries, that don't um, take any risks whatsoever. And even if risks are being taken with some of them, they're not especially high risks. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're not things that can be kind of amended on the fly, as any show that is taking itself seriously should be expected to do. Mm -hmm. You know, lots of, of shows, maybe if their first sort of steps kind of falter a bit, they work it out. They settle into something that works for the audience. They draw on their strengths. But you can't really even determine that until about 10 episodes in, you know, minimum. Mm-hmm. So British television production, you don't even get 10 episodes out of the gate. So it's just so impossible for a show to prove itself, you know. And I find that, yeah, the most exciting area of, of new original television production is like preschool shows. Yes. And I'd never watch that if I didn't do Squiggly. Mm-hmm. So it's a sort of nice thing. I finally have some common ground to like the friends of mine who are starting to breed I can point them in the direction of, you know, Grant Orchard show or Sarah and Duck or stuff like that, knowing that I've done the sort of duty <laughs> um, in service to my industry. But, uh, you know, anyone who has like teenagers, you know, all bets are off. A lot of people kind of, if they say they have a favorite show, they'll talk about like a show that actually was made 10, 20 years ago because yeah. they'll be enjoying the repeats. I'm like, well, then I guess no wonder people are just remaking the same old stuff rather than do a new equivalent of it. It's when you get the, the the adults and the people in their like early twenties or whatever that are they're talking about SpongeBob and Adventure Time, but they remember it from when they were actually the age that it was made for. Again, well, Adventure Time hasn't been going that long, has it? Adventure Time it must be about ten years old. Really? No, I. It was a quick ten years. I'm going to check it out now. I might be wrong. Adventure Time is five years old. Five years old. Which is about two years older than I had thought it was, to be fair. People didn't seem to start obsessing about it until about two, two and a half years ago. Right, okay. So I'm not 60 years old. SpongeBob, that's been around forever. SpongeBob has, yes. Yeah. Adventure Time is a, is a peculiar beast. It has its appeal that clearly people, you know, engage with it. And people from different sort of walks of life and people from different uh, age groups can engage with it for what actually seem to be the same reasons weirdly the sort of the character dynamics even though the characters all at first glance seem like nonsense characters it's a very easy thing to on a surface level dismiss but um you know with with some investigation you have to realize i know that some thought has gone into this it's just personally not like to my taste if i'm being perfectly honest but uh you know if it's on i won't like sort of throw my dolly out of the pram i'm perfectly sort of happy to coexist in a world with this extremely popular original television program. But, you know, even five years ago, I wonder, have things changed so much since then that maybe a show like Adventure Time wouldn't get on the air now? Uh, maybe because everyone's trying to make a show like Adventure Time. Yeah, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, the, the, there are trends with television, aren't there? There are trends with, with both preschool and sort of adolescent television and... Um, and and it's that seems to influence what people are creating and making. Uh, I'm sure you'll have seen looking at those pictures, yeah, quite similar threads running through them. Actually, no. To be perfectly honest, it would be the one that was most evocative of Adventure Time that would actually um, be the safe bet, you know, and that would be probably the one that would get through to the next stage. I guess that actually it also goes to. Um, serve the case for a show like Rick and Morty, which Mm. again seems to be absolutely its own entity. 
and has been doing very well. I mean, I don't know. I mean, do you think of any other shows when you watch Rick and Morty? Like, does it make you think, oh, this is trying to do this? It, Rick and Morty kind of fills the gap uh, that Futurama left. Uh, but it doesn't really feel like Futurama. But it's nothing, it's, it's yeah. nothing like Futurama. It's, you know, uh, there's, there's nothing quite like Rick and Morty. Um, yeah. Even which is odd because it's a parody of um, Back to the Future, but originally it was, and it's doing well, very well. So there you go. I mean, it's like if they had just tried to do like the okay, this is um, Futurama two, or this is you know, if they just tried to do some variation on the Futurama premise, or um, do something in that kind of traditional animation domination style. Mm-hmm like so many other shows have done, I don't think it would have nearly had the same kind of um, uh, hubbub around mm-hmm. it. And in the meanwhile, you know, we, we're seeing this, we're seeing demonstrable success in that kind of, you know, taking a chance on something. And then at the same time, we're watching all these very, very derivative sort of young adult targeted shows appear on various networks. And, you know, they're, they're fine. They're not offensively bad, but they're certainly not a whole bunch to them. And then... When they're not doing that, they're just remaking stuff. Oh, it's the Powerpuff Girls, but with thinner lines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, voice artists we can put on Vine. Oh, yeah, that was weird. Oh, God, that was really creepy. Yeah. I find Vine just... I, the sort of purgatorial nature of Vine videos a little, like, disconcerting. Anything that loops more than, like, four or five times, because if you, like, if you pop something on and then you go do something else quickly mm. and a vine video will have looped 10 times there's oh, <laughs> something sort of inherently sort of disturbing like, hi my name is such and such and i play such and such hi my name is such and such and i play such and such hi my- ah. <laughs> it becomes like the shining kids it's a little bit um forever and ever <laughs> and <laughs> it was it seemed like they were um they handled that really badly the, the whole kind of thing with the voiceover artists. I don't think there was any pressing obligation to um, get in touch with the original sort of voice actors of anything that's being remade. What makes it bizarre is that they're the only ones who were recast, the three women. Yeah. But the peripheral characters that are played by guys, they're still playing those same characters. So in that respect, it's it won't feel like a remake. They'll feel like the sort of part of the same universe. It'll just be like the, the girls who are supposed to be the main characters that will have the completely different vibe mm. you know what i did find kind of sort of interesting is in one of the we had the guy who does um the new ninja turtles on the last episode and uh i i may be getting my turtles wrong but i think in like the very old cartoon that you and me would have watched the guy who played donatello is now playing Raphael in the new one yeah or vice versa. Yes. I don't know, but it's like, that's sort of weird, like, to be kind of shuffled around like that. Like, why not just play the same turtle or like, and I don't think he, I, maybe he's like putting on a completely different voice, but that just seems sort of like odd, I guess. I don't know. It's just that whole like switcheroo thing that you can just do, I guess, in cartoons a lot more um, frivolously, perhaps. Mm-hmm. You don't really see that in live action. Maybe on theatre. Or, you know what you see it in? This is the bane of my Twitter existence. That little c- Ben Mitchell on EastEnders. There's a different one of those every five minutes. And I, I don't watch EastEnders, but of course I'm aware of the character because every time he does something sh- 
on the show. Twitter is ablaze with people saying how much they want to hit Ben Mitchell in the face with a brick. <laughs> and I'm like, oh no, they finally cottoned on. Oh wait, no, they're talking about the guy in the show. <laughs> but yeah, there have been a lot of those kids. Because they did sort of look yeah. it up and there's like you know three or four different actors who played that character. And I guess you can just kind of, if it's a soap opera, it's like, well, people are going to be used to anything within a week. Yeah. So it doesn't really matter who plays who. There's the old joke, isn't there? They go upstairs for three years, then they come down and they're a different actor, especially when it's kids playing them. Oh, right, you know, yeah. When they need, when they need a storyline out of them, they'll, they'll come downstairs and they'll, they'll have, you know, grown or shrunk or, you know... <laughs> So long as he wears his glasses, he's still Ben Mitchell. You know, that was a yeah. thorny adolescence. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All of the press releases that came with the new Powerpuff Girls were quite unabashedly um, keen to point out how much of it they hope will be a vehicle for new merchandise. Mm-hmm. Loud and proud, they're saying, and we're going to be releasing costumes through this company, and we're going to be releasing toys through this company. Uh, the buy-to-own uh, DVDs and home media will be going through this company. Is this sort of... That kind of seems like the part of the press release that you sort of maybe, like, shunt at the bottom a little bit. Yeah. You know, maybe talk a little bit more about how excited you are about, you know, new life in the show and these timeless characters. And No, no, no. And the dolls will come out on, you know, February such and such. And All right. Wow. Gotta catch them all. That's, the, that's such a transparent kind of way of... Good God, that's horrible. That's That's a sort of... I mean, we all know now what we all know what it is, what's it about anyway. All remakes are about you know re- selling new merch and things like that. It doesn't really matter what you know how good or how bad the actual show is. It's it's you know it's it's about that established audience and it's about selling merchandise to them. But blimey, to be so unashamed about it. Oh well. So um, were the were, did you, did you have you received any excuse for the um, for be cool Scooby Doo or Wabbit? Any excuse? Any excuse? Any sort of merchandise-led excuse? Uh, I'm sure that will have its part to play. Yeah. It's a bit like New Coke or New Pepsi, whichever was the one where they changed the ingredients and then changed them back to appease the consumer. Yeah. And you have to wonder, maybe they just changed it originally just to kind of give themselves a shot in the arm when they went back. It seems kind of like that's what they're doing with Scooby-Doo and Bugs Bunny, Mm -hmm. because they did that what I felt was a pretty hard-to-watch sitcom version of Looney Tunes. Uh, and then they I didn't watch Scooby-Doo at all, but from reading the kind of information about that, apparently the last couple of versions of Scooby-Doo have tried to be a little more, like, dark and edgy, and uh, that hasn't uh, proved good bedfellows with the aesthetic or the vibe of Scooby-Doo and their mystery mischief or whatever. Dark and edgy. Hmm. <laughs> I guess they're going to be sort of purposefully more campy and 60s and retro-y. Apparently, the the structure of the new Looney Tunes show will be more like the old kind of theatrical shorts, I guess. Mm-hmm. But again, they kind of they they mentioned that you know, and, but we're going to have a whole bunch of new characters to liven things up again. I'm like, oh, okay, so mm. it probably won't. But honestly, there are like eight billion original Looney Tunes with sort of an embarrassment of riches as far as not, as long as they're not sort of deleting those from existence then you know do what you like i suppose yeah i have to say from what little i've seen of the new design style of uh wabbit it looks like a sort of better spin on contemporizing the uh the designs of the looney tunes characters i thought that the the looney tunes sitcom version of the redesigns and i just didn't feel like it fit yeah nearly as well and then before that they did that awful one where they're all like superheroes yeah 
lunatics. And so, you know, you say, okay, well, we have this bunch of characters that we can do something with. You want to try and do something new with them? Okay. I mean, an all-superhero version of the Looney Tunes characters, is that much more artistically lower than doing a version of the Looney Tunes where they're all babies? Yeah. You know, yeah. and that was fine. No one well seemed maybe people did care about that at the time, but people our age certainly wouldn't have known. Yeah, I suppose back then we did, the internet wasn't as prevalent, so we didn't get that opinion flying around everywhere, and Twitter wasn't ablaze, and you know people couldn't leave comments at the bottom of articles, and you know, so we didn't have that kind of immediate reaction, which is so so important nowadays. You know, as much as they keep make, remaking Scooby Doo and you know Bugs Bunny and everything else, the classics are still there. You can go and enjoy them, you know, whenever you want, really. In this sort of age of you know Netflix and YouTube and you know DVDs and everything else. Yeah. I mean, they're not all there. No, some no. of them have been kind of swept under the rug. Mm. <laughs> You've got to hunt a little harder for some of them. Speaking of uh, needless reminiscences and nostalgia, we can talk a little bit about what's been going up on the site in the uh, two months plus since we uh, we last were gracing your eardrums. One thing quite recently is a little piece by John Lilly on the uh, on the world of Pokemon, which is something that I, I had a little look through. We've never really talked about Pokemon on Squiggly, given that it's such a behemoth of a animation institution i'm glad that finally we can cross it off the list now let's never speak of it again yeah. i'm glad we found somebody with so much sort of passion and uh, about pokemon well quite a lot of our number are, are very passionate about pokemon oh yeah yeah i'm sure but not to this level no no easily to that level i think anyone who watched something a lot when they were a kid can talk at some length and with some passion about you know, what kind of formative influences it's had on it. And I think also the the gentle art of it all is that you can write something about a show that no one has seen and the article is quite interesting and entertaining. And I found it uh, quite an entertaining overview of that universe and all this. I hadn't quite realized that when they remake Pokemon, they use the same kind of group of characters, but there's never any resolution for the main character. He's just sort of always destined to plateau at mediocrity. Yeah. (laughs) Which is kind of sinister (laughs) in a way. (laughs) <laughs> like all this fucking time collecting them all and never quite uh, reaps the rewards or gets the girl. That's probably because they keep adding new Pokemon with every single game. I mean, I remember the original Pokemon craze when it hit the UK. Really enjoyed it. You know, um, it was a good game. And then the TV series came on and I watched a few episodes of that. But the whole th- the premise was there are only, was it was 150 Pokemon. There are only 150 Pokemon and they're very rare and there are only 150 of them. And they made a big fuss about this Pokemon called Mew, who was very extremely rare, completely rare, you know. And there was only one of them or something like that. And they made a movie and all that kind of stuff. Then they released another game with an extra 150 Pokemon in it. And it's like, well, where'd you find all these then? How, how, how dare they? Let no continuity to this bloody thing. I've, I'm done with Pokemon. And they just keep adding more and more and more characters. So no wonder he's on this sort of never-ending kind of treadmill of nothingness. Like their species are kind of burgeoning and never-ending and constantly growing. So if anything, they need some population control. Yeah. I mean, if there was a Pokemon game where you just like had to kill Pokemon, <clears throat> I'd probably quite like that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it'd be like the when you give up on a level of lemmings, it'd just be like, oh, f- it, just send them down a cliff. 
Yeah. I'll just enjoy their screams for the next five minutes. <laughs> now, that was a cathartic exercise. Look at a load of lemmings in one go. Yeah. <laughs> Never made a TV show of that one, though. Missed out on a whole line of crap they could have sold. We would have bought it hook, line, and sinker. Oh, yeah. Things are so cynical now, but back then they just weren't cynical enough. Well. Yes? It's it, it certainly... <laughs> I was saying it's certainly a very passionate article and I'm sure Pokemon fans will enjoy reading John's interpretation of the series. Mainly um, in the last sort of month or so, it's been festival season. And if you go through Squiggly, you'll see a great deal of coverage on uh, uh, all sorts of new events and new upcoming films and the like. You were up in Edinburgh mm. and uh, we had a whole team of people over in Annecy. Alas, not you or I at Annecy this year. You know, hopefully we'll be back again next year or, or in the near future, certainly. It looked like a good one. Women filmmaker-oriented. Mm. Thematically quite interesting. So if you're uh, if you're interested in seeing what you missed out on, or uh, perhaps uh, if you were there revisiting some of it, you can check out a whole bunch of film reviews and event reviews. Uh, there's reviews for upcoming films such as Mune and Rami Shire's Long Way North, which uh, I don't believe either of them have UK release dates as of yet, but they both seem quite interesting. Mune, I think I hadn't quite realised. I had just sort of, perhaps in my head, written it off as sort of more generic CG fare, but there actually is some some fun design stuff going on there. A little like with mm. something like The Book of Life that, you know, at first glance just looks like, oh, another one of these, and then you look again, and you know, oh, no, they actually put some thought into this. You know, at a, at a crucial stage, at that sort of, like, visual development stage. Sarusa Berry... Miss Hokusai, another film that was part of the Annecy 2015 feature film selection. There's a review of that up. I, uh, I actually know nothing more about that one other than what I read in the review, but uh, if that seems like something that will float your boat, check it out. And, uh, oh, uh, here's an obscure one. Minions. <laughs> we have a review and uh, interviews with the directors up on Squiggly, if you like a film that, as far as I can tell, has uh, been spun off from a uh, Haribo sweet line. There's a lot of stuff that I kind of wish I'd been able to check out, but definitely it's getting me excited about stuff that uh, is on the horizon. Let's also look at what's uh, coming up from Pixar, mm-hmm. some stuff that we've... Uh, one thing that I'm quite interested in is this uh, Sanjay Super Team. Yes, that looks pretty cool, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it looks uh, it looks great. It's, um, uh, it's about a young lad who... Is it him trying to understand his father's uh, worship? Um, he's he's obviously worshipped superheroes and his dad worships uh, so all Hindu mythology have been sort of turned into like a super team of, of super characters and um, it's about that really that's about as much as I know the Annecy things this year have you, have you seen the the um, the uh, is it uh, Goblin that um, always do um, the intros to every festival like a, every every day they do a different one. And it's usually based around what the festival decides to focus on. So um, during the Irish year, when, when we were there, um, it was based based on I- Irish folktales, things like that. Mm. And this year with um, Annecy's uh, having tribute to, to female animators and, and people within the industry, um, there's been some very sort of interesting films about uh, women animators. Sort of homages to their style and the work that they had done. Yes, um, yeah. So Lottie Reiniger, very sort of uh, uh, reminiscent of her style. Yeah, that that was a very that was an extremely kind of um, a poignant one at the at the end. You know, the, the they're only a few they're only like a minute and a half each. So so I recommend people go on to um, find them online. There's an article on Squiggly, so you can find them there. 
But uh, yeah, that was a very poignant one. But the one I, I, I kind of had problems with, especially after a year of McLaren celebration, is the um, Evelyn Lambert one with Norman McLaren the Spider. <laughs> <laughs> Have you see, did you see it? Oh yeah, I've seen them. It's incredible. He's, Norman McLaren's, you know, painted up to be this kind of terrible arachnid monster thing, and it's—I don't think that was the case. So to paint him up like some kind of evil spider, you know, it seems a little bit kind of could have done a bit more homework there. Oh, maybe they had dug a little deeper. Maybe he was a cad and a bounder. <laughs> you know, maybe there's something to that. Maybe, yeah. Because I think everything that you've just said is is pretty much the version of events that I think most people would uh, be familiar with. So if something comes along that suggests that actually there was something a little more sinister at play, then that would actually encourage me to sort of dig a little deeper and, and, and learn a little bit more about the exact circumstances around it. There might be something to it. Or it might be absolute libel and we'll never get any nice films again. <laughs> Who knows? Watch this space. I, I haven't heard Norman McLaren deny it. No, 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 no. From his... Yeah, he's been awfully quiet these last few years. Evil web in the sky. <laughs> right, well, have we finished trampling all over the legacy of <laughs> beloved filmmakers? You and me know perfectly well that as, as glorious a legacy as a person can have, they, they are capable of being... Yeah. I'm sure Norman McLaren had his off days there, I'm going to say that. Within his enormous spider's web. Yeah, okay. No, you're right. That, that Probably, literally, he wasn't actually half man, half spider. <laughs> probably in that respect, they may have taken some artistic license. Um, no, I, my kind of, almost a caveat, like, for a, a truly great artist is if I learn a little bit about who they are in real life, and the ones that I really admire, they all seem like people I would never, ever want to meet, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, Francis Bacon seemed like an absolute nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, and evil in some respects. You know, singers that I really like, they, they'd seem like they'd be insufferable to be around. Dali. Did Dali kill somebody just to know what it was like to kill somebody? Well, you know, I mean, we all got to have a hobby. <laughs> yeah. I certainly don't see anything constructive in romanticizing the legends of animation, you know. Mm. I mean, Chuck Jones has his detractors, and he's like a hero, He's an absolute hero. You can only picture him as being sort of this cuddly old grandfather of, you know, truly, truly great animation. But there are plenty of people who probably found him absolutely insufferable. Yeah. That's the whole kind of point of, of to me, sort of what we do is, is focusing on the art. And in so many respects, the art of animation can be something very redemptive in and of itself. Mm. So you can have someone be really dysfunctional in many, many respects past Norman McLaren now, but just in general. Someone can be hugely dysfunctional, but yet be able to create tremendous art and move people and affect people in a way with tremendous reach. And that then, when you consider their personal inability to uh, not alienate people, that's like a tiny drop in the water of the overall effect that they'll have on the world. That, to me, is quite romantic in a sense. Mm. That's a girl I studied with. She was an absolute nightmare. I don't know if she was just sort of insecure, but she was just like lash out at everyone. It got to a point where it's just like, well, I can't make the effort anymore. And everyone I'm sure knows people like this or they work with or studied with or grew up with or whatever. There's someone, the kind of person who like, they just are such a drain and so exhaustingly like angry or like just sort of bitter about things. And yet she made a film that was really very good and quite touching and perhaps shone a little insight into 
the inner demons that she has to kind of wrestle with on a day-to-day basis, and that kind of gave her this tremendous humanity. So I, I don't remember her horribly, you know what I mean? I remember her with mm-hmm. that in mind as well. And um, I'm sure if we bumped into each other in the street, it wouldn't be like hugs and kisses. It would probably be quite terse and awkward. But there is more to the the man or woman than just how they're able to be around people in a social scenario or in a work scenario or as a mentor or as a um, teacher or as a boss or whatever. There's a definite complexity. And animation is such a fabulous insight into a person's inner complexity because it's a real way of like reaching into the the sludge of their brain and pulling out something that can be quite beautiful mm. any thoughts on that i i agree completely Super. With- next segment <laughs> yeah <laughs> back to the festivals um you were at edinburgh how was that this year it was great yeah um they uh, celebrated the uh, work of um, barry purvis and uh with it with a, a screening of his work at which which was nice to see on on film they showed it on 35 um 35 millimeter um so it was nice it was great to see um screenplay uh again which i've not seen on the big screen i've only ever seen on on the small screen and then his more recent works uh alongside it so it was great to see the whole kind of uh, you know his career played out on screen, and he was very witty and and and, and as you'd expect, entertaining uh, on stage. The festival itself is is wonderful. It kind of focuses on uh, it's a, it's a great place to the, the festival itself is wonderful, and it's a great place to understand what's happening in British short animation. So as much as we were complaining earlier on Ben about um, you know remakes and television and everything that's going on there. British short film, if it can get made, is still alive and well. You know, British short animation. And there were some standout films um, at the festival that I'm sure we're going to see at other festivals throughout the year. Um, I, a, f- a few particular favourites of mine is... Um, have you seen Teeth by uh, Tom Brown and Daniel Gray? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. What a film. It's, uh... Yeah, made my gums itch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it does that, doesn't it? It really, oh, yeah. it really kind of gets you, and uh, you sort of squirm, and you know, <laughs> you feel every every bit of it, every single bit of the film, and the punchline is just—I <laughs> call it a punchline. It's just—it's a su- superb ending. It kind of brought to mind the old sort of days of like the Spike and Mike collections. Yeah, do you remember those sort of shows they would put together—the really, really dark like uncomfortable to watch but really good animation yeah that's that sort of because animation hasn't for a while had such a kind of like physical reaction for me in terms of like having to actually like go ah, and sort of you know claw at my face a bit mm-hmm. but uh except for actually a, a film by Sidney bauman which was also about teeth so maybe i'm just weird about teeth maybe <laughs> now, that, now that i come to think of it and it's and this thing is that it's um it doesn't leave you the the idea of of sticking that punchline in at the end it's like a kind of oh you know it's a, it's a reaction it's a kind of like oh brilliant you know it's it kind of it led to something it led to kind of it wasn't just like a a horrible sort of feeling right the way through to the end it, it led to 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 a kind of a real satisfying conclusion mm-hmm. you know and it's it's very it, visually as well it's quite a, you know it's a lovely film um to, to 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 see lovely to see obviously not <laughs> to experience you might not call, you might not call it lovely but it's certainly an experience i really like teeth really like it 
Um, another one that's uh, the another standout film that's now available online is um, Amaro and Walden's Joyride. Have you seen this one? No. It's uh, well, it's available online now. It's by the line, but it's uh, directed by Tim McCourt and um, Max Taylor. And basically, I think they filmed like a remote control car, like on around the sort of streets and you know it's quite gritty urban sort of like so they went around um sex shops and you know town on a night out and um then they went out around uh estates and and things got chased by pit bulls and everything else uh and then they they filmed this and then they superimposed two sort of characters in the actual car so these like miniature 2d animated characters are, uh, are sort of sat in the in the car and it, and it and it's it's a fun film. It's like you know a minute and a half or something, but it's an absolute riot all the way through. It's it kind of reminded me a little bit of Gorillas. Okay. Um, it 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 may be a Gorillas for for the you know twenty first century that kind of. Uh, even though the Gorillas are probably Gorillas of the twenty first century, but it, it, it was great. You know, the, and the two D fit the car perfectly you know there was no kind of slipping and sliding around which unfortunately there was on another film which was which was very good um but not quite good enough for me called uh toon ocalypse uh which is like a, a tale about um uh these alien creatures come to earth and these aliens are are 2d and then after a year things go bad and um they begin to kind of make things bad for the people of Edinburgh, basically. And it was, it was like a 20-minute long film. Kind of student filmy, in a way. You know, the way that it was presented and the acting and things like that. But um, still quite, still entertaining enough. You know, I, I enjoyed it. You know, it was, it, but it could, it, it needed a few changes, you know, to, to make it, you know, extra, extra special, I think. What, uh, what would you say were the films that had that kind of extra special element? What were the ones that uh, really popped for you? Well, I've been a fan of I've been a fan of uh, Marcus Armitage's uh, My Dad for a while, I, because of its I, I, I love its message, um, the idea of, of of you know adults influencing children and, and influencing their kind of ideals and 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 you know the way that it, it, it kind of uh, the way that the film degrades over time with. And, and the, the the boy's life becomes you know worse for this this sort of uh, you know right wing influence. It's a real kind of uh, it's a great demonstration of of what what animation can do. That's uh, that that was a that was a very good one. The NFTS films were absolutely superb. I I, I love the I love the N- NFTS selection this year. Um, we, we had um, Edmund by Nina Gantz, which won at uh, at Annecy. Uh, Once Upon a Blue Moon by Steve Boot um, is a kind of looks very handmade, but it also looks like real top quality children's television work. Very well put together, very comic-y. Um, and I really enjoyed that. That's Once Upon a Blue Moon. And uh, uh, Andy Martin has created a film called Mr. Director, which film fans will absolutely adore. Uh, animators will absolutely adore as well. Uh, it's just about this this guy with an enormous ego going through it's like a mockumentary but it goes through his past work um like films like robots versus bananas things like you know just just daft just ridiculous uh films uh and and this this mr director stands in for 
you know, Spielberg, um, Lucas, whatever, all these all these guys through history. But he's just a big pompous ass. When pomposity clouds artistic judgment. Yeah. Which I think is something that uh, a lot of major directors kind of suffer from. Yeah. Andy Martin, of course, did The Planets, which was that uh, monthly series of short animations from, I think, two years ago that he then edited into a longer film. Mm-hmm. And The Planets was a fabulous showcase of all these different animation and design styles. And uh, I think a lot of people's favorite segment of the planets was uh, the stop motion claymation segment with a, on a planet that's at war, a sort of war of words with one another. Mm. Um, this film is, is, I think, probably quite evocative of that segment in terms of the use of claymation combined with other processes. But it's, it's more a kind of claymation stop motion film than not, you know, because mm-hmm. the planets also had quite a lot of abstract humor in it and a lot of... Um, conceptual humor and sight gags toward the end like the last few planets are a lot more kind of like dialogue based the humor Mm -hmm. like a lot more of the aliens and inhabitants start like having conversations and things like that and then the first few months were very kind of mograph oriented so there's this interesting progression in the planets when it's all edited together of how it sort of starts and how it ends uh, I think Mr. Director probably feels a little bit more like the later planets because it's it's you know it's a very scripted film that were and the script works because of then the cutaways to the visuals and the um mm-hmm. these scenes from films that don't exist but you can absolutely appreciate the context of you know what might have happened before and after this scene in the film mm. kind of like a McBain clips yes you know, I, exactly you know yeah. exactly what kind of film they're watching even though you're seeing like just 10 20 seconds of it it's just it's just it's a film that's like chock full of little treats you know that's that's what it is, and and you know every every bit of it's funny. Um, I, I really enjoyed it as Mr. Director. Um, another film which which uh, I surprisingly enjoyed. I say surprising because I'm not a massive fan of scratch on film. Um, I you know I kind of enjoy it uh, certain for what it is, but um, scribbled up by Ross Hogg. Um, kind of you know it turned my expectations around a little bit because um, he took. The, the, scr- the traditional scratch on film, you know, you see it come on the screen, it doesn't take up much of the screen, um, and there's like a scratchy, clicky, poppy noise, and then these scratches and clicks and pops gradually create a soundtrack, and which merges really well with the visuals, which explode in, like, colour all over the screen. Um, it's very creatively done. It's, you know, it's, it, it, it's not somebody going, I'm going to make a scratch on, I'm going to make a scratch on film. Um, film. It's somebody who says, I'm going to make a scratch on film, film, but I want to take the audience somewhere else with it. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, yeah, very nicely done film. So speaking speaking of abstract, the, the played next to it in the actual programme was Unhappy Happy by Peter Millard. Have you seen any of Peter Millard's films, Ben? Oh, yeah. The man is an absolute nutcase. He's, he's he was, you know, very nice guy and everything, but his, his films... Of just the work of an absolute madman. He knows which point I will wonder what's wrong with the film and turn around to look at the projectionist, <laughs> and then he then he just continues on this kind of mad, rambly, colourful, musical adventure of a film. He, he, he's um, yeah. He, he, I think I described him last year as a stand-up comedian who knows who can make jokes about comedy and make people laugh. So really, it's not so much about being like a madman. It's actually being quite astute, yeah, and yeah. able to convey something simply, but in a way that I mean, to to make a simple and abstract idea funny, 
um, that takes an actual sort of keen awareness of your craft. Absolutely. So on a surface level, yeah, something looks like it's all kind of rushed up with crayons or whatever, but then you want to watch it again and again, and it's funny. It's always sort of tricky because it's almost like audiences being as conditioned as they are by what is just sort of on whenever you turn on the television. If anything is the slightest bit challenging, mm. it's like, you know, OMG, mind equals blown. Like, WTF did I just watch? Yeah. This person must be on so many drugs. It's like, no, they're just creative, you know? Yeah. Settle down, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Get a hold of yourselves. They, they, they had a funny idea and they did it. Yeah, you know? Syriac is, is another one, is a, is a prime example of that. Syriac Harris, the guy who does all the sort of the mad stuff. Uh, other films that were showing at Edinburgh were um, international films. And I suppose my stand, standout favourite, although there were some fantastic films there, would, would have been Ernie Biscuit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've seen uh, Adam's new film, Ben. What do you reckon to it? Well, I think that it's absolutely um, in keeping with you know the Adam Elliott style of filmmaking that uh, I think you and I both adore. I think it's absolutely perfect. It's, I was a little thrown at the beginning the opening couple of minutes are quite different Mm. sort of french physical comedy based almost but quite quickly it then settles into uh, a very sort of narrated character driven piece sort of mini sort of biography as with all his other films to date you know and it felt like sort of somewhere between um harvey crumpet and his original trilogy uh of films Mm. brother cousin and uncle We've had Adam Elliott on the podcast before, and I listened back to um, how we uh, introduced him and discussed him uh, back then, so as to not repeat ourselves too much. I think we sort of covered all the sort of bases of why he's an important filmmaker to us uh, in that episode. I think it was episode 16. And that, uh, that has an interview with Adam where he talks about pretty much going through all his work to date uh, up to Marion Max. And this is the first film that he's actually done since then that we've been able to see finished made under very sort of interesting circumstances it's a lot more independent than anything he sort of made since uh, the original trilogy so that i think to me is why it kind of feels evocative of of those earlier films but of course in terms of length and uh, scope and the sort of sense of adventure to it it's it's more like a sort of harvey crumpet type film it's that sort of length there are a few more sort of action beats in it than any other film that he's done. More so even than uh, mm-hmm. Marion Max, which was a feature film and it had a lot to it and there was a lot that went on in it. But it, that, again, was a film about characters. It was a film about emotion. Um, it was mm-hmm. a film about relationships. And this is more of a sort of journeyman film, like uh, like with Harvey Crumpet. And it's part of uh, what he's now defined as a trilogy of trilogies, as uh, he'll go into shortly. So he has six of these films done now, which is pretty amazing. Like that's already a very impressive body of work that anyone who works in animation can um, lay claim to. Uh, and he has three more in him. Mm-hmm. One hopes he'll have the um, the abilities and the resources available to make them. It's interesting how, like, as he sort of explains further, this film will be sort of an experiment or has been an experiment in seeing what he can do with quite minimal resources and whether there's a way of using that approach for a feature film. I don't see why not. Mary and Max was very sort of fully animated and it had a big crew and everything like that. The fact that he has pretty much made this film himself is astonishing to me. Yeah. There are definitely tells in terms of it's about as animated again as brother, uncle or cousin, 
but you know the slickness of the look the 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 craft of the sets the craft of the character design you know the action beats and the comedy beats the the wonderfully directed narration that is all absolutely pure adam elliott and in a way i mean i i have nothing bad to say about mary and max it has just always seemed to me to be an absolutely perfect film this is is definitely more a kind of step more in the direction of those earlier films but that's sort of in keeping with that trilogy of trilogies concept this is the film that would be paired with harvey crumpet and eventually another film yeah he has the other three that he started with they're already their own trilogy and so of, of the three that he has left to do two of them are feature films yeah so he has definitely saved the uh the hard work to last yeah but you know that'll keep him busy for a good long while i'm very happy about that and it's just great to hear him happy and excited about animation that's i think that's the main thing isn't it and i think that shines through in ernie biscuit is that kind of comedy caper at the beginning i think that's maybe adam saying i'm back and i'm i'm gonna make a film for me you know i'm gonna this is what i want to do now i want to have a bit of fun so this is ernie's story you can enjoy watching it you know not to say that it's not full of that um the 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 classic adam elliott sort of components that we all know and love the, and the, the the reasons we laugh at Adam Elliott's films, but um, yeah, it's certainly uh, it's one to seek out. Certainly, mm-hmm. certainly, someone who shares our absolute sort of adoration of Mr. Elliott is Laura Beth, who uh, has been a frequent podcast and squiggly contributor. Um, she's interviewed quite a few people for the podcast and definitely for the site. She got some time with Adam just before they showed in Annecy this year. I think the last time we had caught up with Adam had been at the Bradford Animation Festival. A good year and a half has passed since. So it's very interesting to see how dense that year and a half has been. How pretty much mm-hmm. since um, he came back from Bradford, it's been sort of all go in getting this film done. And yeah, I'm just really, really happy he's, he's still doing it. Me too. Couldn't agree more. So let's hear from Adam Elliott talking to Laura Beth Cowley. I think Ernie, I haven't quite psychoanalyzed Ernie yet. I, I know I'm sort of at the same stage I was with Harvey and Mary Max where I don't quite know what I've made yet. I haven't really had a proper audience even yet. And and Ernie is certainly an amalgamation of many characters and, and you know, I do, like many people, have a, a love affair with, with all things um, Parisian and... Uh, but also have a, a bittersweet <laughs> relationship with Australia. So I, I knew I wanted the film to start in another country like Harvey Crumper, which starts in Poland. I mean, Ernie Biscuit is sort of is is part two of a half-hour trilogy um, exploring uh, misunderstood, lonely old men, which is I think in many ways me. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so Ernie is. Is, has many aspects of myself and my own beliefs and, and feelings and emotions. And uh, so Ernie, like Harvey, is a fish out of water. He's a, he's a migrant of sorts and he has to try and learn how to assimilate in a very short period of time. And, of course, like Harvey, has uh, seemingly perpetual bad luck and he, um, you know, he has, to, he has to become his own hero and he has to... He has to, well, as, as the quote at the beginning of the film says, he has to become the windscreen. And um, So I really wanted also two countries that really uh, contrasted each other, so that, you know, the, the, the beauty of Paris and, and the ugliness of Australia. Um, I really 
wanted Ernie, you know, in his bow tie and vest to come to Australia and just suddenly be suddenly be immersed in in the ugliness. I mean, not to say that ugly Australia is an ugly country, but back in the 60s there were many aspects of Australia that were not just aesthetically ugly, but, you know, we were much more of a racist country back then, uh, particularly to anyone from Europe. Um, this is a lot of uh, backstory that I'm telling you in a lot of sort of subtext, but um, I wanted there to be hints of all these all these things in the film. And uh, and the third part of the film, which is yet to come, uh, is also going to be about a, a, a migrant, not from Europe, this time from, um, uh, well, I can't tell you actually, but it's a <laughs> certainly not Europe or Poland, you know, certainly America. Uh <laughs> So, yeah, so that, whether or not that film will ever get made, I mean, really, you're only as good as your last film, so I'm uh, hoping Ernie will hopefully open a few doors. Um, I mean, Ernie was a very, in many ways, a very experimental film too because after Mary and Max, which cost about $8 million Australian dollars, uh, we realised that that was a luxury and, and to get that sort of money from the taxpayer was a, was really just one-off and it was mostly because of Harvey Crumpet and the Academy Award that suddenly we had this window of opportunity. So we were very lucky to make Mary Max but there's no way we could raise that sort of money here in Australia and so I realised that my films had to get more economical, more efficient, uh, cheaper to make. So I started developing a whole lot of new techniques and Ernie was a perfect vehicle to test those new techniques and see how cheaply and quickly I could make the film. And I'm glad to say that that it worked out because I've now been able to reduce the budgets by two-thirds and I can now, I could, if I had to make Marion X today instead of eight million, I could probably make it for two million. So it means that if I ever get the chance of making another feature, I can... Um, I can ask for much less money from investors, and uh, and also I wanted to make Ernie because I after Mary Max I really felt I wasn't getting my hands dirty anymore. I mean, on Mary Max I was the conductor of the orchestra, and I really was, was preferring to be one of the musicians, and and I. I've, I just missed playing with the clay, and I missed making things with my hands, and and I. I, you, I, I am a control freak, and I really wanted to to do as many of those things again as possible. So I, I set myself a very difficult task of writing, directing, animating, producing, editing, constructing, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much you know as many credits as I could as I could uh, could do an attempt, and and I, I managed to do nearly all of them. Um, I mean, I had to get a sound mixer and a um, a colour grader at, at the end. But I mean, there's you know certainly there are I think parts of Ernie that don't quite work and parts of the film that are um, you know it doesn't have the production values of of Mary and Max. But it, I never expected Ernie to have those high production values. I I really just. Where I did put in all my um, time and effort was was the screenplay and the script because with all my films I I know that I'm I you can never reach the aesthetics I really want to achieve and I I know that 
you know, writing is the most important but also the uh, cheapest part of the process and it's just bits of paper or, or a computer and, and you just sort of... So I, I did, I think, 25 drafts of the script for Ernie. He did start off as a feature at, at one stage and but the, we worked out that the budget was just going to be astronomical because of the very dynamic nature of the, the story. So I, uh, I quickly realised that, no, Ernie, Ernie would work better as a short than a feature. And um, so, yeah, it's been a long journey. It's been five years and uh, he's getting into lots of festivals, but, you know, I, I often worry about that, that I might be getting to festivals based on my reputation. I'd rather get into festivals based on my film. <laughs> <laughs> but so, it's still a, it's a beautiful film. Oh, thank you. Well, it, it, I often wonder whether I'm just remaking the same film each time and I think, as I said earlier, all my characters are elements of myself or alter egos or uh, they're certainly over the years I've realised that these characters are in many ways me. Um, so Ernie, I, 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 you know, I do worry I'm becoming formulaic as well. And but I, I don't, I don't know. I try and push myself with each film, and I think the role of a director is to push the boundaries and to to try and strive for new ways of telling stories and new types of characters. So I, you know, I, I do feel that I'm evolving, but you know, it's really up to the audience. They might just see that I'm I'm just remaking myself each time but <laughs> who knows I really liked um, Angelina actually she's very different to your other puppets as well as as a personality she's very different because she's so quiet because I know none of your characters talk but they're very expressive mm. and she's almost like a noir character yeah she, she's um, Angelina's an evolution of many other characters I've, I've always wanted in my films and she I wanted her to be strong I wanted her to be rigid um, I didn't want her to show any signs of weakness although she does show some signs of vulnerability towards the end um, she's had a tragic life but from my point of view I see her as a very strong character and she she only appears briefly, but um, she of course has a big impact on Ernie. And um, and I didn't want to over animate her either. I mean, again, I, I it's it's so much easier and quicker to animate a character who doesn't have eyes and who doesn't who doesn't walk, who doesn't talk. <laughs> Just basically, she's very static. Uh, and I'm, sometimes I worry that I've made her too static, but. She, the audience's the little mini screenings I've had here so far. She's really provoked a response, particularly from women, and I, I really want to start, you know, writing more and more female characters because over the years, you know, if you look at all my films, they're all, they're all about men and they're all about me, and and I've sometimes been called a misogynist for you know, well, Adam, why are there more women in your film? And well, Mary and Max, uh, Mary was really about my childhood, so. I really, you know, the, the films I have in mind down the track, I really want there to be more and more um, strong female leads, just like I suppose in Hollywood there aren't enough strong female leads, um, although the things are changing slowly. Um, but anyway, yes, so Angelina, I don't, I don't quite know where she came from. She, In the feature version of the film she had a much more uh, colourful backstory and there was a lot more melodrama 
because uh, she is melodramatic. Originally, she she did speak, and I wanted Angelina Jolie to to, to do her voice, <laughs> but of course, that was very. <laughs> That would have been a very expensive exercise. <laughs> she reminds me a bit of um, Morticia Adams as well. Yeah, she has a lot of, I think she's she has a lot of grace. She has a, a little bit of Jackie Onassis in there as well with the glasses and um, she's an eccentric. I would have loved to have the time and the money to make her, her, her apartment in all its indulgence and lavishness and, you know, rich velvet curtains and... <laughs> And you know, beautiful cushions and couches and things, but I just, you know, again, it was a very cheap film, so I, those sorts of things had to go out the window. But, um, yeah, no, look, uh, it'd be interesting to see, particularly at Annecy, how they respond to uh, Angelina. And uh, yeah, it's interesting to see uh, Adam Elliott's sex figure, she's <laughs> <laughs> the sexy well, Adam Elliott. <laughs> I've never done romance, really. I've never touched on love in my other films, but I've never... I, I mean, I don't even know what to call this film. Is it, is it a romantic comedy horror? I don't know. Um, I sort of wanted to make a lighter film too after Mary and Max, which was a very, you know, Mary and Max upset a lot of people emotionally, and I, I wanted to make something lighter just for my own sanity and... And I also wanted the the characters to sail into the sunset and both be alive. And so I tried to make this film happy. I mean, there are dark moments, of course. But apart from those moments, I, I see it as, as probably the fluffiest film I've made. How are, um, how is the puppet and the rest of the cast holding up now after filming? Well, look, I'm probably going to upset you by telling you, but I... I and I upset everybody after yeah. each one of my films. I, I throw everything out. Um, I not everything. I've kept I've kept some of the characters, but I um, for me it's very cathartic destroying everything once the film's made. I it took a year to build and shoot everything, um, and then a day to destroy it all. <laughs> But it doesn't bother me because it, it bothers other people, but it doesn't bother me because I treat my films like like a theatre company would treat their sets and that theatre companies don't keep everything. They recycle, they re, re-appropriate. And, um, you know, and I, on this film I use very minimal ingredients. I, I did, There was no mould making or airbrushing or wood. Everything was basically either cardboard, clay wire and paint so no not not many the characters just yeah for me they're always temporary and, and I'm not really I have exhibited my puppets and, and sets and props in the past but I don't I feel uncomfortable doing that and I you know I'm really reluctant to put them all on display I don't I don't sort of like I don't even call them puppets I don't even like that word I I, I call them sculpts and they're they're vehicles for telling a story and really what's important is what, what's on celluloid and what's now digital and that's that's where they all belong. They all belong in this magical world of cinema and they don't belong on shelves or under glass domes in art galleries. I don't really, I don't know, it makes me sort of feel uncomfortable. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> Do you never think that maybe you could use those to help fund your next film? Oh, I certainly could. Everyone just says, Adam, you're throwing you're throwing money in the bin. You know, you you could be putting these on eBay or you could be making miniatures. But 
But this new type of clay that I'm using, unfortunately, uh, it, over 25 degrees Celsius, it starts to, to deteriorate and melt. So they're, they're not even um, – I'd rather make characters that are a lot quicker and more efficient environment, in environmental to make than ones that, are, that will last forever on a shelf. But, um, oh, you know, look, Mary Max, I've still got a few characters from that. There's, there's a couple of Harvey Crumpets I still have, but there's nothing from Uncle, Cousin and Brother, my earlier films. They're all, all gone. They're all at the, at the dump. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Sad, I know. It probably all goes back to um, way back to when I was at film school. The the dean of the school um, souvenired one of my characters, uh, Uncle, and she kept it on her desk for something like fifteen years. And every time I go in to catch up with her, I'd look at the puppet on the, her desk, and it was slowly. It looked like something from a horror film. The eyeballs were falling out, and <laughs> fingers had dropped off, and. And I had no control. I wanted to rip it off her desk and take it home and fix it up and repair it. And she loved the fact that it was deteriorating before her eyes. And I was ashamed. I mean, to me it was, oh, you know, these these are little personal characters I've sculpted and I don't I don't want to see them in, in, in bad shape. So I'd rather have them, you know, destroyed completely than in a disheveled uh, state. <laughs> anyway. I should move on. <laughs> Fair enough. Why did you choose to make the film now, or was it just straight off the back of Mary Mac's next film? I write one screenplay at a time. Every screenplay I've written, I've turned into a film. I don't. I don't have multiple projects going simultaneously. I let the characters come to me, which is why they take so long to write and which is why each film, you know, the, it takes about five years really from concept to its first screening. And Mary and Max was such a difficult and, and draining film to make. It was, you know, it really took a toll on me mentally and um, and because Mary and Max is based on my real pen pal in America, and you know there was a lot of emotion I put into that film, and a lot of um, blood, sweat, and tears. And like I said earlier, I just I just felt I didn't want it. It was too early to make another feature, and and to make one with that much emotion in it. So I, I just for again for my own sanity wanted to make something lighter, and I wanted to make something that was a bit more upbeat and a bit more um, feel good and, and so um, yeah and Ernie, Ernie just again I don't quite know where he's come from yet and he just he ended up telling me what he wanted to do and what his length was going you know whether he was going to be a half hour or, or a ten minute or a feature and um, I really treat my characters as if they're real and uh, they're like children now and they they you know, we, we have former relationship, but now Ernie's been born, he has to go off into the world and I wish him well. And with all my films I see imperfections and things I wish I could change, but you've got to move forward and you're just going to focus on the next project. So um, as I said earlier, I'm, I'm now thinking about getting pregnant again and I have, have some other characters in my head that I'm wanting to meet and let them develop and evolve. And, uh, you know, I've really only got three or four films left in me and then I'll probably be you know, too old to make anymore. So <laughs> one thing at a time, and I love that quote of uh, just do one thing well and, and, and just focus on, on, on 
one thing at a time and quality, not quantity. Yeah. So very much like old Ardman. Yes. Well, look, I, and I love all the earlier Ardman films and, and they would admit right off the bat that these days your films have to have to reach a very wide audience to make a profit and they have to be family friendly. And But I know that my niche is not family friendly. You know, I know my niche. I can, I can take risks with my films. I can... I've never had to compromise the story. You know, I can deal with subject matter that other big studios just can't tackle. So, you know, I can have characters who have Asperger's and characters who attempt suicide and who are alcoholics and I can have nudity and I can do all the things that (laughs) other studios. You can have real people. I can have real people and I think that's what I've realised over the years, that that is my niche and that's probably where I belong is telling stories that are a little bit, you know, more challenging and and bittersweet and aren't necessarily films that can be merchandised and, and, um, you know, they're little films. I think I'm always going to be a little filmmaker who has to struggle each time and will try and scrape, scrape together money to make the films with taxpayers' money and... That's the nature of the beast and that's the, that's the world of cinema and that's the way it is. And I can't see that changing. Well, I'm very glad that you still do go well, through the effort of to, doing so. it all. <laughs> God, I think, you know what, with Facebook now and social media, I've been off Facebook for such a long time, but I've, I've just rejoined and my former producer has allowed me now to, to communicate with all the Mary and Max Facebook fans and I think there's something, 60,000 of them. And, and I tell you what, I... Having that sort of social media now really helps me um, continue on because the old days, particularly living here, as I said earlier, in Australia, which is very isolated, you do you do need people to give you feedback and, and tell you, no, 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 we do appreciate what you're doing and you know, keep going. And So uh, social media, I think, is going to become very important to me down the track. I mean, I was on Twitter for about a month and then I abandoned it because I just... I had nothing to say, really, and <laughs> so I thought, no, I'll just I'll stick with Facebook. And uh, and actually, you know, if you go to my Facebook page, it's called Adam Elliott Clayographies, and I use that word a lot now, clayographies, which is a pretentious word I invented. <laughs> and um, uh, but I I'm, I, I want to really remind people that my films are made of clay. They're not they're not pumped out of. Uh, 3D printers, or they're not uh, they're not mass produced. They're they're you know they're real. There's, there's no visual effects. There's fishing line, and you know there's it's all done traditionally. And um, and that 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 clay is the the thing. Clay is the thing. Clay is clay is what I love making my characters out of, and it's a very tangible, tactile uh, process. And um, you know I will never become a computer animator. And, uh, yeah, so I've got my Facebook page, Adam Elliott Clayographies, if you want to have a look. And I've started this little thing too. Years ago I started this club called uh, Drawing of the Week, which each week I draw a little picture and then email it out to my friends. And that was way back before broadband. And so I could only send out sort of 50 to 100 emails at once. Uh, But, of course, now I can send out thousands. So... I've started this little mailing list where if you join my mailing list uh, every or every now and then I'll send out a little 
clay character I've sculpted purely for myself. It's not going to appear in a film or anything, just a little little clay character. And I, I like doing that because it's quick. It's, it's, I don't have to wait five years to get feedback. And uh, so I'm going to do more of those. As soon as I get back from Annecy in Edinburgh, I'm going to really try and do at least one a week and um, email them out to you know, all, the, uh, all the people out there. But I certainly, you know, I think Ardman and particularly people like Nick Park have really put stop-motion animators um, back on the map. And, and I remember when I was graduating back in 1996, I was told I was pursuing a dying art form and that stop-motion would be obliterated by CGI, and that has not happened. It's, it's, in many ways, it's the opposite. You look at the Oscars a few years ago, Three out of the five feature films were stop motion. There was Frank and Weenie, uh, Paranorman and uh, Pirates, the Ardman Pirates. Mm. So if anything, we're going through a bit of a renaissance and I think that the digital technology is, is really has a, um, a lot to do with that and that we can see what we're animating and we don't have to rely on celluloid anymore. And You know, it's just become much more liberating now to be able to animate in a way that's quick, immediate, quicker uh, and more immediate. And, you know, we don't even have to wait for our rushes anymore. We can animate and see it in high definition. Well, all animation is always experimental, but stop-motion animation is the most experimental and always will be just because it's still physical and it's never not going to be a physical Medium. Absolutely, you know, and it and it's got that tactile look to it, and that's that's why often people say, oh, you know, something magical about stop motion animation, and and I know what they mean now because there's an extra level of appreciation when they see the fingerprints on the clay, they know for sure that that this character has been handcrafted, and there's something with CGI that you sort of well you. You know that there was an artist at the beginning of that process, but you do know that there's a lot of rendering and there's all these other magical softwares that were um, um, applied. But with stop motion, you generally know that most of what you're seeing has been handcrafted. And, of course, there's plenty of digital cleanup. We can do rig removal and we can have digital skies and fake water and rain and all the rest. But, I mean, all my films are still, everything you saw in Ernie was handmade. Even the rain was was a big sheet of glass I brought in and drew, drew the raindrops onto the glass. <laughs> Nothing, there was no rig removal in Ernie at all. I, I just hid all the rigs magically. And this fishing line, I, you know, I love, I don't mind people seeing some of the little, tricks and some of the little things, devices we use. So it's just, again, because it adds to the magic and it's it's all smoke and mirrors and it's, um, yeah, anyway, I'm going on and on. I think that's the funny thing with stop motion is that if you see those little bits and pieces in a film, it actually, it's part of its charm and people enjoy oh, trying yeah. to work it out. Where if something's not right in CGI, it's just wrong. <laughs> it just doesn't look right. Yeah, actually, you've hit the nail on the head. That's that's the best way of describing it. Is is exactly that? Is I think the audiences are more forgiving with stop motion. That they, I mean, it's it's a bit unfair in many ways. People think that stop motion is, uh, you know, CGI is just as as slow and just as complicated, and if, in many ways more complicated than stop motion. But for some reason, we get a level extra level, extra degree of appreciation because they think that. I don't know, we, we also, stop motion animators tend to be seen as loners, 
and, and I sort of like that stereotype, but I, it's not true. You know, we, we all wear black. We, we all wear black. I mean, I do wear with black. <laughs> I think too, it's, it's I relate more to sort of painters and sculptors than I do to other filmmakers. And I have to be honest, it's a little, I'm not a big animation buff. I don't I don't go and see all the Pixar and DreamWorks films, and I I much prefer shorts to features. In, as a viewer, I have a short attention span, so I much prefer shorts. And I, I really love, you know, sh- films that like, like a, have a schmunk my uh, essence to them, or films that are experimental or scratch film. I like films where you can really see a texture quality picture. to them. Yeah, and that there's um, there's a true auteur behind them, and that there's there's a real, you know, I, I love that Annecy shows films where it's about the artist and that the focus of Annecy is still the short films, not not the the ads or the series or the features, that shorts are the focus and that's that's where it often begins for a lot of animators is with a short. But often that's where it stays too and that's why I love making shorts and I will always want to make shorts and that they're not stepping stones to making features and they're, they're not necessarily calling cards. They're an art form in their own right and, and we, you know, and, and I'm always reminded of that, particularly when I go to Europe, um, that you meet animators who are in their 60s and 70s who have made nothing but short films and, um, and that's great. I think short films in many ways are harder to make than features because it's, it's knowing what to leave out, not to what to put in and, and pairing it back and distilling it to its essence and, and it's really hard to be succinct and, uh, you know, it's a big challenge. So that was Adam Elliott talking to Laura Beth about his new film Ernie Biscuit, the sixth in his trilogy of trilogies, so an eventual nine films. Hopefully, we will uh, we will get out of him before he uh, before he hangs up his animation socks. But uh, animation socks. Yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I, I find that my workflow increases dramatically when I wear my animation socks. Are they like flight socks? Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Very okay. good for uh, staving off deep vein thrombosis. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, yeah. I certainly hope that Ernie has really kind of awoken the sort of driving him to create more because, you know, we need filmmakers like Adam Elliott. Mm. Well, we need storytellers like Adam Elliott. Absolutely. So uh, so returning to cinemas uh, is uh, director Tom Moore with his feature film Song of the Sea, a, a superb visual feast of a feature film. Uh, ben, have you seen Song of the Sea? Yep. I would agree with that description. It's certainly um, one of the most sort of visually rich 2D features I've seen in a good long while. I mean, you can definitely see a lot of elaborate kind of background and environment work in, uh, you know, 2D features from major studios, but the design sensibility of this one is sort of above and beyond, you know? Mm. It's faithful to sort of folk tradition and yet incredibly contemporary, incredibly um, skilled as far as design and composition. Pretty much every, like, wide shot or background or environment... um, you know, it, it's a work of art in itself. Mm-hmm. It's almost like you want to pause it every couple of minutes just to kind of like take in one environment to the next and properly appreciate something that is only on screen for a few seconds at a time. And just sort of little things, little kind of details, the approach to the um, the autumnal trees with the browning leaves and how they're kind of like designed, almost like they've been bisected. Mm. So you're really kind of looking at the sort of the, the veiny workings of the branches between the leaves and uh, uh, the use of symmetry 
there are certain um, approaches to what the actual environments are. I think one of my favorite sequences in the whole film is a uh, it's a cavern pretty much entirely made of hair. Yes. I think this film, honestly, I'm not a kid anymore, but I just sort of what I've, I've pieced together from A, films I remember as a kid, and B, films that I see sort of, you know, people 10, 15 years younger than me talk about, like films that really had an effect on them. I think this film has an absolute magic to it mm-hmm. that children are going to carry with them their entire lives. I believe this is going to be something like how people talk about my neighbor Totoro oh, yeah. uh, today. One hopes that, you know, if it gets in front of enough kids, it certainly seemed to do very well so far. Everyone, as with, you know, the um, the sort of critical acclaim of film like Mary and Max, modest as its distribution was, it's beloved across the board. This film so far has been beloved by every sort of outlet that I've seen. Every time it's come up, it's been about someone saying, oh, my God, this film. Mm-hmm. I don't know quite why it's taken so long to be released in the UK. Uh, I think we're about at least six months behind in some respects. Yeah. But uh, I'm just very glad it is. Uh, I'm really looking forward to actually going to see it in the cinema. It's a film that really deserves, again, to be seen in a, in the best presentation possible. Mm-hmm. I think it's very encouraging as far as like just the world. Like, again, going back to how we were sort of a little defeated by the culture of constant remakes. You know, not to be an absolute cynic, but sometimes it is a little hard to get excited about another film about minions or <laughs> another film about Kung Fu Panda. Yeah. And I'm still on the fence about the Peanuts movie. It could be very good, but it's like one trailer goes one way and the other trailer goes the other way. Mm-hmm. One trailer sort of indicates that it'll be right up my street and the other trailer indicates that it could be absolutely unwatchably like drippy, such as the world of trailers you never really know. But I'm also just because it's Peanuts and, you know, Peanuts are fine, but Jesus Christ, it's not as if it's a brand new world. Well, this is a film that it's steeped in sort of tradition and folklore, but it's taking this the central kind of idea of what folk tales are, which is that they are not sort of, you know, set in stone. And the whole kind of point of these tales being told is that there are different spins on them over the years. Mm. They have entirely different sort of mythologies to them uh, from one era to the next. So in a way, this is taking, you know, long established source material and completely sort of crafting this wonderful original story around it. Uh, While at the same time, even though it's changing elements of the folklore, that being the point of folklore is remaining very faithful to it. I don't know. I just, I'm very impressed by the whole thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I, I can I I agree completely. The the sort of notion of kids carrying this through the lives as this sort of magical film that they enjoyed from their youth. Um, the film is a, a I, I do like seeing it's something that's, that's that's sort of kept for stop motion films such as the pirates and um, you know Paranorman and, and the box trolls. Is that kind of appreciation for the craft that comes at the end of the film and uh, at the credits of this film? They show all the artwork that goes into the making of the film, mm. which I think is always a lovely touch. You know, um, in fact, the pirates was quite difficult to watch at the end because you just stare at all the props that they stuck on the the reel. Um, <laughs> pay no attention to anyone who worked on the film. You know, all the hardworking folk uh, that, that names are listed on the credits because you're too busy just, just gawping at the artwork and just thinking, "Wow, these are." You know, these are artists making this thing. This is an actual, this is a work of art. And um, 
it's nice to see that in 2D at the end of a 2D feature. Well, I'm sure the people who work on the film would probably far rather the audience actually sees the the, the work itself than their name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, certainly just an absolute uh, uh, joy to kind of study. And the animation I had thought from watching the uh, teaser trailer would be a lot more sort of um, rudimentary than it turned out to be. It's actually really, really fluid. I think sort of that sort of all goes back to, in my head, or in my remembrances, um, looking at the animated survival kit lectures and um, how I think a lot, because a lot of the um, design of the characters in the animated survival kit, it's quite basic, purposefully so. And I think for a lot of people who perhaps just sort of skimmed their book and never really sort of committed to it, they might not have thought that much of it, not really sort of appreciating what is actually being said or what is being conveyed. I think that comes through a lot clearer in the lectures where you're actually looking at the animated examples of what are essentially like stick figures for the most part and how you can just inject so much life into them just by those tiny little movements of hands or hips or little tiny little almost imperceptible facial things that characters can do. Little things with the fluidity and settle and whatnot and secondary movement. And that's why it's such an important sort of first sort of port of call well, um, was it Williams? Um, he talked of the the thief and the cobbler as his masterpiece. That these master animators would make a masterpiece, uh, a feature film. And whilst um, as the the thief and the cobbler exists within the mind of animators and everything, as this what could have been, what what you know, it was never completed. All this kind of, you know, the myth around that. Whereas um, you know what what what. Um, Cartoon Saloon have, have produced the last two features they've done are masterpieces. Mm. You know, there's no no way around it, and they're they're complete, and they're there, and they're there to enjoy. And uh, you know, every bit of it is just uh, beautiful work. So uh, Julia Young, who has been sort of taking the lead on uh, Song of the Sea coverage, um, and has been absolutely killing it for us of late. She's uh, done a great deal of the Annecy coverage, and uh, if you look through some of the stuff that she's done recently, she's really, really. Uh, put together some fabulous interviews and this uh, interview we have now with her and tom moore uh i absolutely rank amongst them it's absolutely fascinating to hear about the development of the film what could have been i loved uh i won't spoil it but like one of his sort of uh ideas for how it would have been visually uh, executed i would have loved to have seen like a test for it at the very least but uh, uh some things for practical reasons aren't to be is fair enough uh, and i do think that the decision that they ultimately made suited the the film best but yeah and also just that uh, again someone else who was carrying on working has a lot more up their sleeve given the sort of track record so far just with these two features uh not to mention just with you know the reputation cartoon saloon is getting for themselves with their amazing short films and uh the work they've been doing with television as well i really do think that there's a there's going to be a lot to look forward to from this lot so yes, here's Tom Moore, the director of Song of the Sea, which has just uh, at the end of last week been released in UK cinemas. So I really enjoyed The Song of the Sea. It was an Great. absolutely wonderful film. Um, I don't know if you saw um, when we were talking about it on Twitter, there was a bunch of children in the row in front of me who were absolutely enthralled. They loved it to pieces. Oh, great. That's the most important thing, I suppose, that it, you know, it goes beyond the animation fans to the, the kind of actual audience that we originally intended it for. So that's yeah. a- yeah, I think that's the real kind of, you know, that's the tell of a good film. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who are going to listen to this on the podcast who might not know 
about Cartoon Saloon or who you are or what the Song of the Sea is, can you give me a brief overview of who you are, how well, you came well, to be where you are? Right, well, my name is Tom Moore. Um, I live and work in Kilkenny in Ireland, which is a medieval town in the southeast of Ireland. Um, and we had a studio here called Cartoon Saloon for about 16 years. We set it up straight after college in uh, the year 2000. And uh, myself and uh, Nora Toomey and Paul Young are the founders. And uh, we do a whole variety of things, but the big reason why we set up the company was we wanted to make our own feature films. Our first one was Secret of Cows. And now we're just getting ready to release Song of the Sea in the UK and Ireland, which is our second homegrown feature film. Oh, wonderful stuff. And can you tell me a little bit about the inspiration behind uh, the Song of the Sea? It was kind of a spiritual follow-up to Secret of Kells in a sense, but for me it was an attempt to sort of reimagine some of the old folklore and retell it for uh, a new audience, a young audience, so that the, the folk tales and folklore that inspired it were not, didn't become kind of, you know, for tourists or like kind of cheesy stuff in tourist shops or, or maybe considered by kids to be passe. I wanted to try and rein, reinvent it for the, the kind of vernacular of today, you know. Yeah, and as you say, it is kind of the spiritual second film sort of thing. Mm -hmm. is, was there anything that you kind of picked up from Secret of Celts that kind of helped you with Song of the Sea? Was there anything you learnt in that process? Yeah, oh, for sure, in, in, in every aspect. Um, I mean, Song of the Sea was actually bubbling away under the surface during Secret of Celts. It was an idea that came to me in the very early days of Secret of Celts. So it was something that I'd been working on, and even just prior to the release of Secret Accounts, we were we were working on a on a trailer, and I was eager to apply as much as I could of what I learned on Secret Accounts, Song of the Sea. But you know, there was a five year gap between them, so things changed. Even technology, uh, we ended up animating Song of the Sea with TV paint, which I was a bit reluctant at at first because we'd been a very much paper and pencil studio, and kind of defiantly so for a long time. Um, but we'd done a TV series using Flash, and I'd seen the efficiencies of digital production, but I still felt the final look didn't match paper and pencil animation. But more and more young people were coming in who trained in classical animation but used deep paint, and uh, I finally converted, and I'm glad I did, because I think it allowed us to do as full animation. It's still frame-by-frame -frame animation, but it allowed us an efficiency to be more creative and, and maybe to do, I think, maybe better animation, because we moved over. So I think that was the big technical change mm -hmm. but um, story wise as well I, I really wanted to focus on the audience from the start so I right from early on I had, I had friends I'd met after Secret of Kells and the kind of tour that the nomination for Secret of Kells led to in Pixar and DreamWorks and stuff and they were really helpful in, in giving me feedback on the story and the animatic um, I kind of treated the it was quite an organic evolution for the story, but every iteration that I had in Story Reel, I showed it to uh, my wife's primary school class. So I had about four years of different eight-year-olds watching different versions of <laughs> giving me feedback. So very different to Secret of Kells, which was, you know, very much a kind of almost like an internal little secret project that bubbled away for 10 years and then uh -huh. released it. Song of the Sea was much more, you know, uh, and like anticipated both by ourselves and, and, and in general, you know. No, oh, that's wonderful. That's a great description. Thank you for that. Um, and I suppose as well, both in terms of the fairy tale kind of themes of the two films, the Song of the Sea is also kind of a spiritual following of Secret of Kells in terms of its style as well. You go for this wonderful kind of 2D illustration type style. Yeah, we actually, we kind of, um, 
we dithered about that. We wondered should we do something very different because we evolved the Secret of Kells style very purposefully to emulate sort of medieval art or stained glass windows or illuminated yeah. manuscripts, things like that. And we wondered was it appropriate, but it was kind of in our wrists. It had actually had kind of become my style, as it were. It was kind of my first instinct. And so what I did was I asked Adrian Merjo, who was one of the main background artists on Secret of Kells, be the art director and between the two of us we kind of mashed our styles and I think we found something that was a nice evolution I mean I was mucking around with watercolours it just felt like the obvious medium for uh, Song of the Sea and he's such a talented watercolour painter like I learned so much from him and he brought a a really unique sensibility, he kind of brought his own style and some really interesting influences that were from outside what I'd been drawn on for Secret of Kells. So I think it became kind of a, an evolution, even though it's continuation. I think it, it's, a, it's a slightly different direction than Secret of Kells. Yeah, it's really nice as well, the kind of fairy tale theme that just suits it really well. Mm. Um, did you get any kind of struggles in doing that really sort of hyper 2D thing? Because, of course, the sort of main, you know, US industry type thing is getting more and more towards live action almost. It's getting more and more real. You yeah, know, and it's just so refreshing to see your films, which are you know completely the opposite direction. But were there any <laughs> challenges with that? Not once we committed. I mean, at the start, there was discussions with different bigger entities that would have wanted it to be a CG or whatever. But what would have been more? That wouldn't have been the main problem for me. The main problem would have been that going that route also would have meant that not only would you have to go CG, but you would also have to make the story much more commercial. Let's say you know much more. Uh, more like in the, in the general style of the of modern 2D or CG anime film. So trying to keep that fairy tale quality, that kind of picture book, kind of timeless. I think 2D animation has a timelessness. Yeah. And um, the way we put it together, we had this quite a big constellation of co-producers, like five partners all over Europe. And they were all small studios like us. And they were all like, I used to joke, they were the coalition of the willing, you know. <laughs> they were all people that signed up for what we were trying to do. So once we kind of said, this is the way we're going, and we picked our partners based on that, there was no more resistance because everyone knew what they were getting into and we kind of sidelined any discussion of it going. In fact, one of the most interesting discussions was that um, I um, really was interested in making a stereoscopic 3D uh, and we did a test with like 2D illustrations but with stereoscopic 3D. I thought it looked really cool, like a pop-up book or something. Uh-huh. But uh, in fact, the co-producers pushed back against that and they said, <laughs> it's like, we're making a kind of art house type movie and, and you know that, that's not the right way to go and anyway it would have been so much more expensive they were probably right yeah no I'm very glad it ended up as, as it did it was very powerful as it was so kind of moving back away from the production now and back towards the sort of story and kind of what you intended there's a really sort of strong moral behind the story this kind of environmental message and stuff is that important to you do you feel you know it's not just about keeping fairy tales alive and relevant for children it's also kind of you know giving them that message is that intended yeah it came from i mean the the story itself came from um a trip in the west when my son was about 10 and we came across the seal cull where fishermen had started to kill the seals um out of kind of a frustration i suppose and some of the local people we talked to or the lady we were renting the cottage from kind of was telling us about how the old folk belief would have linked people to the environment much more and so they would have been more respectful at least of seals they would have imagined they might be selkies or they might you know there was this kind of folk belief that uh, people were losing I think 
touch with and we were getting more and more embroiled in this kind of Celtic tiger thing that was happening in the country at the time where it was, you know, um, profit before anything else. So I sort of wanted to wake people up to a kind of wisdom that was already in the culture, you know, and kind of remind them of that. I mean, the environmental and sort of all of that sort of angle kind of watered down and I'm glad that it's still there in the film. It, it started out being a bit more heavy-handed in the first drafts and I think as... I'm happy to, that that's the kind of power of these folk tales and these stories that they can kind of be that kind of message can be under the surface. You don't have to kind of hit people over the head with it, and they still get it. So I'm happy that still comes across. And do you think it's fair to say then that you kind of yes, your films are sort of intended for a younger audience, but you kind of treat that audience with more maturity. You know, you don't talk down to them. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that. I think that we just sort of make the kind of films that we wanted to see ourselves. I mean, I remember the touchstones for us were things like E.T. or Into the West, the Irish film Into the West, or My Neighbour Totoro. And I think those are the type of films that they have another level to them, that you can enjoy them as a kid, and then you can watch them again as an adult, or maybe the adult watching them might see something in it that the kid mightn't see in the first... You know, I think those are the best kids' movies. They've got several levels. I think the best fairy tales and... All the children's stories have several levels to them, so you kind of try and work like that. I remember my mum, when we went to see E.T., she was really crying. And uh, I remember I was kind of upset about E.T., but I think she was crying on another level. There was another le- there was another family story going on. There was a whole metaphor going on in E.T. So that, that kind of thing we talked about, myself and Will, when we were writing the script, that we kind of wanted it to work as a family story that worked for all members of the family, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And do you think animation is like a good medium for that? Do you think it kind of brings something that live action can't? You know, you can talk about more serious subjects and do more nuance, perhaps. Yeah, we talk about that a lot. I mean, we talked about it on Secret of Kells as well, because there were some pretty heavy esoteric ideas floating around Secret of Kells. It was very much a kind of young animation student's film in some ways. <laughs> we're talking about art being important, and we're working through ideas like that. And, even the history, the time we were dealing with all the Vikings and stuff, it kind of made us question how heavy did we want to go. So remember, um, Nora is making a film at the moment called The Breadwinner, and it's set in like Afghanistan in 2001. And so, you know, it's dealing with pretty heavy themes. But when you look at movies like The Grave of the Fireflies by Takahata, uh-huh. they, can, they can handle... I think animation has a... Has a kind of an interesting quality that you can it can make things bearable that might be a bit melodramatic or, or too much in, in live action and at the same time they're kind of more immersive in a way too, you can kind of relate more to the animated characters because they don't seem so over there, they don't seem so um, different like whenever you watch a film you can kind of separate yourself if you recognise the actor you can see it's a movie but somehow animation has a power, at least for me when I was young, that I got more sucked into the story you know, so. yeah no, that's great. And sort of more specifically then about Song of the Sea, can you talk about some of the other fairy tales that you used? It wasn't just um, Selkies, you know, you had um, yeah. the Great Seneca and, you know, all the fairies. Yeah, that we was- had too much. Yeah, we had too much in the first draft and, and that's why we kind of ended up with the ones that we had. I, I was packing too many ideas in and they were all kind of worth exploring. Mm-hmm. But it was kind of a bit of a... It was a, We called the first draft a fat baby, you know, because it was just so... <laughs> We loved it, but it was too it was too much in there. So we kind of paired it back to just the folk tales that we could kind of adapt to mirror what was going on for the family. Like the central thing was that we felt that the Selkie stories generally were about loss, or about dealing with loss, because they always dealt with the 
the Selkie returning to the sea and leaving the family behind, you know. So we thought, okay, that's that's the theme, that's the key story. Yeah. So we're dealing with a, a modern family dealing with loss and, and how broken it is. And so the only the, we stripped out a lot of the other folk tales that we wanted to reference just to use. And we even adapted the ones that we kept. So, like, uh, the great Shaniki is kind of almost a homage to Eddie Lenehan, who is, like, a great Shaniki, a storyteller. He would have been on TV when I was a kid. He did 10-minute tales, and he was amazing. And he goes around schools, and he's an amazing guy, you know. He, he uh, tells the... He kind of keeps the stories alive in the oral tradition, you know. And so he's got this amazing big beard and everything. So we kind of we kind of had some fun with the idea that each beard might hold a story, each beard hair, you know. Yeah, and yeah. Then, um, yeah, and 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 MacLear was obviously obviously somebody that we could mirror Connor with, but MacLear was you know son of the sea, he was the sea god, and there's sad stories about MacLear in Irish, and even in like Isle of Man has a certain connection with MacLear. So this is all stuff that we were just sort of um, almost going on a shopping trip through because that's something that Eddie really gave us uh, permission to do. He kind of always says that the the folklore and, and fairy tales they're not gospel they're not written down never to be changed he adapts them every time he tells them and because they're an oral tradition they evolve for every audience and every generation that tells them and so that's how you keep them alive and so that's how Maka evolved from this kind of war goddess who turned into a raven into this like kind of echo of granny as a kind of owl witch because that's what you needed to be for this story but you might see Maka again in another another iteration and she'll be a, she'll be different again you know Oh, that's great that's absolutely great and it's nice as well because often in sort of fairy tales the characters can come across very black and white but because you had that kind of mirroring between the characters they came across as much more sort of well-rounded yeah that was one of the that was one of the ahas for us that when we thought about things like it's done very subtly in other films like wizard of oz or peter pan but that sort of idea where the kids uh real world um it's kind of reflected in this other world that they journey into it kind of it gives it all a kind of a context and a sense that the, they're not just two completely separate adventures you know that it's all one sort of psychological adventure at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah it, it, i find that makes it much more powerful as well you kind of get you know you get the very subtle message in sort of the human characters but certainly for the children as well who those subtle messages might be lost on they kind yeah. of get the gist through those fairy tale characters it it's very- becoming, yeah, it's becoming kind of a style in the studio. I know Nora, um, we're working on storyboards now for Breadwinner, and we're kind of treading some of that through. I think that's one of the unique things with animation, that you, if you do it in live action, it's very kind of, it can feel a bit like tacked on or ham-fisted to transition from one world to another. But I think animation, it's kind of seamless because you're always in this sort of, like, especially hand-drawn animation, it has this sort of picture book quality, and you can use all the language of, of art direction, you know, to transition from one place to another and draw parallels and make it really far apart or really close depending on how you how you draw it like no that's wonderful thanks so can we now move on to like the breadwinner and stuff is that the project you're working on currently what else are you working on um well i'm i'm kind of i'm in a nice position on breadwinner i did some storyboards but i'm kind of hopefully able to help nora from an overseas point of view you know i'm not not day by day involved anymore i did some designs and storyboards earlier on but she's got an amazing team on it right now so i'm kind of just watching the animatic and giving her feedback and stuff like that but i'm personally engaged in uh developing my next feature called the wolf walkers okay. and that's that's sort of what i'm working on day by day now with, with ross stewart who was the art director on secret of Kells, we kind of co-directed a little chapter of the prophet yeah. for uh, Salma Hayek's company last year that's been released this year 
And so we're trying to do our first feature together as co-directors. So that's going to be it's going to be fun. That's very exciting. That is. Have you had much of a reaction yet from the profit? Yeah, I've only heard good things. I mean, I was excited to see it myself because it was one of the, the story I always said about the profit was that when I was in school, I never got picked to be on any any teams or anything like that. <laughs> when they called up and asked me to be on a team with like Roger Allers, Bill Plimpton, yeah. all these amazing people, Nina Paley and Fritzy Brothers, all these guys, um, I was like, God, I have to be on that team. So even though we were in production of Song of the Sea and I was very busy, I, I sort of found a way to make time to work on that as well because I just think it's an amazing collection of artists they put together for that project so it's really exciting Yeah, absolutely, I'm very I'm very much looking forward to seeing it so We're sort of wrapping up now, can you give some final words on, you know, who inspires you, advice, you know, people who, you know, admire you and want to kind of follow in your footsteps and make their own films <laughs> Final words <laughs> Final words It's a bit of a, okay No pressure um, well, I, I, you know, I've been asked this a lot over the last while, and um, and it does feel strange to be in it, but I can see how I'm in a position now where I could give an advice, but I still feel like I'm very much a learner, um, very much a student myself. What I, what I really think is that if you're kind of authentic and you keep at it, like if you keep to your own authenticity, you can't go wrong. And I think, you know, people say that they draw all the time, you know, look to your own, own life for your stories and, you know, all that kind of stuff and I think you get that advice from anyone but what I really found useful advice I got really early on in my career was just to uh, keep showing up you know like yeah. we we uh, started off as students we really should have been applying for internships but we went meeting people <laughs> talking about co-productions or you know taking on work for hire and we were just uh, uh, naive and cheeky enough to do that but we kept going like we like a lot of people do that and then they drop out you know and they and they, and they, they fold and they give up but I really think that if you want to make something, um, whatever whatever kind of project it is, it really is the art of teamwork. So it's about getting out there and meeting people and finding the right partners and the people that want to work with you. And there's a, just a strength in continuing to, to show up and people eventually realize you're not going away and you're serious and you are going to make this and they can either get on board or not, you know. And uh, for me, that's sort of the, the main advice I would give people that if they really want to do it and they're determined to not to give up and perseverance. I mean, anyone who's trained as an animator understands the importance of patience and <laughs> perseverance. So absolutely. you have to apply it to, apply it to your ambitions to be a filmmaker as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again. Um, See ya. Yeah, have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So that was Tom Moore, director of Song of the Sea, also director of Secret of Kells. And uh, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, The Wolf Walkers. And, uh, oh, I also haven't seen The Prophet yet. Have you seen anything of that? The Prophet? No. That, uh, they screened at Annecy, didn't it? Yeah. I hadn't realised that there were quite so many people like involved in it. Mm. That it was sort of this kind of mass grouping of all these amazing animators. It's kind of like, a, um, I assume, a, a, a much less horrific ABCs of death. <laughs> that sort of bringing together of all these different sort of talents or something. Yeah. But yeah, no, I'm I'm fascinated to uh, to check that out. But yeah, until then, uh, Song of the Sea in cinemas should be in cinemas now, or if you're listening to this in the future on DVD, or if you listen to this in the far future on some kind of gun where you can stick to your head and it will inject the images into your mind. Now that is a fine idea. <laughs> a cartoon gun. A cartoon cartoon gun. Yes. So I was researching our, our next guest. Uh, it's always good when we get guests on the podcast, Ben, because we get to review, review their old films and uh, revisit them. And I watched The Cat Came Back by Cordell Barker, and uh, the song's still in my head. 
Yeah, it's not going anywhere anytime soon. But yeah, su- a, a superb film. Absolutely love that. It's um, there's there's a, there's a lot to be said of people not making. We said earlier on people not making Looney Tunes anymore or things like that. And uh, this isn't a Looney Tune short that you made. The uh, the cat came back. It's the same level of fun, isn't it? It's a hell of a good transfer they have of it up on the uh, the NFB website. They do a fine job of preserving their work. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't look like it's as old as it is. It came out in 1988. If you watch it online, it's it's you'll be quite, well, hopefully pleasantly surprised by how clean and crisp and clear it looks. It's a really, really nice, high-quality transfer, mm-hmm. which is something, that's kind of a geeky thing, I suppose, to, uh, to profess to being impressed by, but still, it's part and parcel of the whole being into the culture of film and animation, I suppose. Which well, it's, it's nice that the NFB look after their films so much, isn't it? You know, it's it's such a what, what a um, wonderful institution they are to to um, promote and preserve and protect animation in such a way, and to sort of fund filmmakers and the very uh, nurturing of filmmakers and and Cordell, somebody who has quite a quite a back catalogue. I love um, uh, Runaway as well. Well, Runaway, I think, is a great example of this sort of sense of the um, hyper-energetic. I mean, they all are, in a sense... I mean, Strange Invaders plays at a slightly calmer pace, I suppose. The cat came back when there are the... uh, the the scenes of you know displacing the cat and finding a way of getting rid of it um those tend to be very sort of highly charged runaway i think sort of really kind of carries through that sort of like hyperactive energy it's a curious thing to you know see his his latest film which is called if i was god and when i heard about this about a year and a half ago was wondering how is that frenetic energy of cordell bach is going to carry or translate into a stop-motion film and the answer is it sort of doesn't. There are certainly elements of like panic and of action and there are sort of storms and uh, people freaking out and running away and stuff like that. But there's definitely a more um, grounded sense of reality to it as a stop motion film. Uh, and yet there are these elements of it that then become more fantastical and more like flights of fancy that then do absolutely kind of indulge that playfulness. Mm-hmm. And you absolutely realize, okay, you, I'm, I'm watching a Cordell Barker film. I just like that he's gone in such a, a, in a lot of respects, it's a very different direction. Yeah. Even with the the designs of the characters, which I believe he designed himself, it is a different approach. I think all of his films have different designs, though, haven't they? I mean, The Cat Came Back and Strange Invaders are probably the closest linked, but Runaway doesn't look like his other 2D films. I suppose in some respects it's more about the the quality of the movement. Hmm. But I think that the outright cartooniness of all of them... Like, I, it's interesting that you say that, because if I was going to draw similarities, I would say that Runaway, to me, feels more similar to The Cat Came Back, and Strange Invaders was the odd one out. Right. But going on a sort of purely design sense, I can see that there are probably quite a lot of similarities to Strange Invaders that wouldn't necessarily be present in Runaway. And again, it goes back to what we were just talking about, about like how... You know, you can take a stick figure and animate it a certain way, and that can be the stamp of a director, you know? Yeah. He didn't actually, if uh, if I was God, he didn't actually do the animation for the stop motion. He had this crew who uh, worked on the animation itself, and then he animated the kind of fanciful bits as he'll, uh, he'll go into. That's where the identifiable stamp of the, 
the animator Cordell Barker over the director Cordell Barker really kind of shines. It's a fabulous film for just the visual concepts. We have a lightbox video with segments of this interview, but also quite a bit of behind the scenes footage as well, which I think people would get a kick out of that really sort of shows like the, the extra level of craft that went into the film. It's just really just fun to look at, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the elements that you're talking about, the 2D in a sort of 3D environment, really well done. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it's probably best to just turn it over to him and travel back in time to uh, when this film was still being worked on. This is from a semi-recent visit to the NFB, where I got to catch up with Mr. Cordell Barker. So I'm here at the NFB talking to Cordell Barker. Very, very impressed by this sort of setup here. I think this is your is it the fourth film with the NFB? Yeah, or? fourth. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just, uh, called If I Was God. Right which is a rather intriguing title. Um, <laughs> it's my working title, okay. and I keep toying with the idea of changing it, but I like, I like the abruptness of it, uh-huh. you know, the just like, uh, and it's probably offensive right. to, a, to a significant slice of people. Mm-hmm. So, and that has a, an appeal. <laughs> I don't know why, but... Is there a backstory to this film? Is it uh, an original idea, or is it autobiographical? Well, yourself uh, contemplate being God? Uh, who doesn't? <laughs> but it is ostensibly autobiographical because it is a memory of me when I was uh, in grade seven. And, uh, you know, those formative years when you, you sort of have a whiff of adulthood, mm-hmm. you know, you're almost kind of there, you're on the doorstep of becoming uh, more adult like. And, uh, sort of sensing that power that's that's going to come. I'm very bad with memory, like of school years. It's just a blur. So I'm a, I've actually kind of manufactured a memory, and uh, which is more appealing to me anyway, because there's lots of films out there that are a memory of a certain person or, you know, very concrete thing. But I, I wasn't interested in doing that. I wanted to kind of sort of make an amalgam of, of thoughts at the time. Can you talk a bit about the story of the film itself? Yeah, I debated how much of that I should reveal, but it's like, it is me, as I stated, in grade seven, remembering back, uh, so it's gonna have narration in it, so I'm remembering back, and uh, it's during the uh, science component of the class. And there's this frog dissection scene in it, which triggers the whole sort of having the power, you know, like the old electrostimulation thing of the frog and speculating on having that kind of life and death uh, or seeming life and death abilities. And in the classroom though, there's, the, there's a little microcosm of society. You know, there's the person, there's a, a very, I was very short in grade seven, extremely short. And so I'm being bullied by a girl that's even shorter than me, but I'm, I'm attracted to a girl that's much taller than me. And so this whole thing plays out and there's little imagination sequences. And, and the th- one of the things that drove me to do this, I wanted to do stereoscope. And I love the idea of kids in a classroom on a grid, you know, like it's not just a bunch of stuff in there. Everybody's sitting in kind of an order, right? And it, that kind of box-like, grid-like formation of kids in a classroom really appealed to me in stereoscope. You know, you have Everything's defined. So, and stop motion is perfect for that, for stereoscope. And because it has this kind of weird sort of surreality to it. But I also wanted to do 
other forms of, of animation as well. So as I, as a grade seven student, as I'm speculating about having the powers of God, I'm going off on little, little imagination sequences, which allows me to uh, dabble in other animation techniques. And the, and the animation techniques are triggered by the very things that are in the classroom, you know, the different mediums. And uh, so I just thought, yeah, it was a good vehicle for me to kind of experiment and, and just kind of go nuts. Had you worked with stop motion before now? No, never. <laughs> Dangerous thing. But here's here's the thing, is that uh, I knew that I needed, because the classroom had to have a certain kind of semi-reality to it, like a kind of like a professional base to work from. And so I'm working with um, an animation, a small animation crew of Dale Hayward and Sylvie Trouvet, a couple that uh, do animation together. And uh, so they did my characters in the classroom based on my designs and I did very detailed animatics so that I could control everything. And then from there, the imagination sequences, I wanted to do those because their imagination of a grade seven student. So I felt that once the professional base level was set in the classroom, I could be as naive as I wanted in the imagination sequences. So as a result, if it looks bad, I can just say, well, it's supposed to look like that. <laughs> so it's perfect. So the, the reality of the film is, is what your crew is working on, and then you have the, you're taking on the fantasies. And right, the, so yeah, sort of yeah, so there's like, yeah, there's like 2D that's kind of mixed into a stop-motion three-dimensional world on a flipper machine that I built. And then there's like chalkboard lines come up, so there's my 2D component, like chalk lines on the chalkboard. And then claymation, there's, there's some right there, claymation stuff, and then paper mache. I'm going to do like paper characters that they're sort of like pieces of, like uh, they're made out of paper and I've made all these like paper mache worlds, but and again, I didn't have to make really perfect like it's like a mobile that comes to life, you know, like uh, hanging up in the ceiling. But the mobile only has to look as good as a grade seven student could possibly make it. So again, the bar has been set low for me. <laughs> yeah. The nice tactic. As far as the incorporating the the two D elements. Is that going to be done separately and composited in, or are you doing it as part of the overall stop motion? No, no, yeah, that would definitely be animated separately and then composited in, because to do it on the chalkboard and wipe it off, you'd have, I think, too much of that boiling awareness of stop motion look. And there's certain areas that I want to get kind of away from the stop motion feel of the film so that it feels like the other form, like 2D, that sort of clean, controlled 2D stuff. So yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be, as much as I can, compartmentalize and keep things so it feels different, you know, than the main part of the film. So, which is, I'm hoping that'll be successful, but who knows. The, uh, the films that uh, I think we're all familiar with of yours, uh, to date, the predominantly 2D films. There's a very loose, very sort of frenetic energy to them. Yeah. That, uh, is that something that you're going to try and capture in the, the stop motion elements of this film? Or are you looking at it from a completely different? Well, 
Yeah, that's a, a, re a really interesting question because the, the cutaway scenes, like the imagination sequences that I'm doing, I want to be in full control and bring in those elements of, of speed and frenetic activity. And yet part of me wants to kind of stay away from the f overly frenetic stuff of like Cat Came Back and okay. things like that, where I'm just trying to experiment with a different tone and a different kind of pacing. But the trouble is when I do it and then I look at it, I'm constantly going, oh, it's like that's really hanging on the screen for a long time. I should really tighten that up and cut out some frames. And, and, and then when it starts getting faster and faster, it, starts, it feels right to me. And, um, and I guess I'm an impatient viewer. And once I see something and I get it, then it's like, okay, like move on. And that's, I guess, how I approach my own stuff. That, that I want it. It's like I've already gotten it already and, and I want it to jump to the next thing. So it's a bit of a mix, but I, like I've always said in different interviews is that uh, any filmmaker, you, in a way, it's very hard to escape your own sensibilities. And I think everybody, they might try to experiment and go in different areas, but you end up kind of doing that same kind of tone, you know, over and over again. So we'll see, you know. Like the stop motion is a little bit slower than I would like, yeah. like of my own stuff, but I may have to just stick with, with the way it is. So you've been quite involved in the, uh, the design side of things for the stop motion? Completely, the yeah. Yeah, I would do uh, drawings up, like profile drawings, face-on drawings, and um, you know, just all, all the detail stuff, like all the props, uh, giving sort of schematics of, of how they go together and because I want I had a very particular look I, I didn't want it overly set dressed because I see a lot of stop motion that has got tons of set dressing in it and I didn't want that I, I wanted things to be a little bit more blank you know a little bit more sparse and like big especially not from this wall but in the reverse angle when you look at the kids it's not like a, a wall behind them that has tons of things taped to the wall like you would see in lots of stop motion films. I just have like a big green blank wall because I liked the kids framed in, in just blankness. You know, because that's my memory of, of being back in school is like big walls, big blank walls and, and, and green. It, it has an isolating look to it, I think. So very much like the whole design and staging and I even learned how to do Maya enough so that um, I could work out desk sizes and kid spacing and choose lenses because I wanted to know, well, how many, like if I see this kid sitting here, how many kids will I see behind him? And if I do like a, a rack focus and I just want this kid up close and this kid back here, am I going to see those other kids and, and off to the side? So, so I, I played, and you know, you can tumble the camera around and I could, I could see how, how tall my big circa 1970s window sizes were. You know, like those big giant windows before they closed them all down and made tiny windows in classrooms. And so I remember those days, the giant windows. So now with tumbling the camera and choosing lenses, I could, I could go, okay, no, those windows aren't big enough or, they're, or uh, they're too tall. I don't need all that height. I'll bring it back down and, you know, where are the mullions and all those kind of things. And 
So that really helped me a lot in figuring this whole thing out because I didn't want to just build a, a set, just say, go ahead and build a set. And then I get on location and you start putting your camera in. It's like, oh my God, this like, I can see way too many kids here. And, but if I pack them all together, then that doorway isn't in the right spot or anything like that. So I had the ability to do every single shot in the film and look and see what was visible from this angle and then if I had to move the door in how will that affect it later on from different angles and it was constantly so without the Maya thing yeah that would have been tricky yeah. so it's a sort of reference for layout almost yeah is right. it a common practice with stop motion nowadays to sort of build something rudimentary in CG and just for reference or? I don't know but I would guess yes yeah. because why wouldn't they yeah. because they could they could get somebody that is a lot more efficient at using Maya than I was because I was learning it from just like learning how to take a ball and twist it in space, you know, all the way up to building a little set. So if they had somebody who's really good at it, they could have done that kind of stuff in no time. And um, the director could work out a lot of issues ahead of time. So I would guess that almost certainly they must, yeah, at least in some rudimentary fashion, I think. So you mentioned it's going to be stereoscopic, and uh, something I've been I've noticed with some recent NFB films and the ones that have been made for 3D projection is that they, they really sort of pushed the boat out a bit as far as using 3D not just for its own sake, but just as something that really helps the story and really kind of justifies the layout of a shot and things like that. Right. Is there a sort of mission statement perhaps for the NFB to kind of use 3D? in a way that's, that's beyond what is useful generally with like feature films where it's just kind of that. If there is one, it wasn't uh, <laughs> related to me, but I didn't have any cautions or requests about, okay, when you, if you're using it, how about doing such and such, you know, with it or whatever. So I'm just using it, I'm probably using it in a very sort of tame sort of way. Like I'm not really exploring boundaries other than, than what I said about, I like the idea of stop motion with because it creates that surreality but I'm I'm keeping everything kind of in the box yeah. screen playing back I love that it's when it starts leaping out that that I just find it too uh, gimmicky and yeah. and distracting and but when it's down in the well I just find that charming and in fact I always think of it as almost like a diorama like the shoebox dioramas and in fact that's one of the things that drove me to do this because I have shoebox dioramas in the film, like little mini ones here in the classroom, but then you go into them, I have larger scale versions. And, but even that, I'm not bursting anything out of the screen, I'm keeping it down in the, in the well. And I think that works very well with stop motion, like you say. It's oh yeah. Because CG is always CG, and 2D is very hard to pull off in, in stereoscopic way because inevitably the layers are going to have flatness to them. Mm -hmm. Unless you're designing it in a very graphic flat, yeah. you know, flat planes in a 3D space, but your designs have to be very obvious that it's yeah. that flattened kind of thing. Whereas something like a film I saw yesterday from here, The End of Pinky, where um, oh, yeah. character animation is, is more or less flat, but the way the environment is constructed and sort of conceptually thought through, that makes it very interesting to watch. You know? Right, right. It's, it's having a good angle with it, which is nice. I like the, the diorama angle. 
interesting. Yeah, well, I hope, yeah, I hope so. In a way, I was sort of, because uh, I was blown away by the, the feature film Gravity. And, oh, yeah. uh, and, but I have a space, I have a space sequence in mind, you know, because the paper mache globes and planets and all that. So that, sh that should be fun because I have to shoot them all as separate elements. And then it's like I have all my ingredients and then I go into the comping and see this world kind of generating in front of me. And then I can decide how much depth and how much coming out of the screen. I, I could see certain parts. Like I say, I'm not so big on things like leaping out the screen, but I could see like the sun there. If I shoot it tight enough and just like maybe the veins or the rays are at screen plane but but the dome of the the ball of the of the sun leaping like not leaping but just bulging forward in space you know yeah. so those kind of more steady state more graceful kind of things going on and if there's anything quirky and fast i'd rather keep that down in the well and uh that feeling of space going on out away from you that's not pushing any boundaries but i'm just trying to keep it all palatable. So the last film yours I'm familiar with was Runaway, and uh, is, that, is this the first project you've worked on since then? Yeah. Or have you had any sort of other projects in the meantime, or is it just straight from one to this? Well, I mean, I do a lot of commercial work in between, in between and prior to this film during productions, and uh, yeah, it just takes me a long time. I. Uh, <laughs> like a ridiculously long time. I was talking to Bill Plimpton once, and I think he started around the same time I did, or even shortly after I did, in, in the business. Because, you know, he was an illustrator first, and then, but my first film was at a, in Zagreb back in 88, and he had his film, I think his second film was in there. And then I saw him a couple of years ago, and we were talking, and, and I said, well, how many films have you done? And he said, uh, well, I guess it'd be about 52 now. And <laughs> I was just like, what? <laughs> i got to find a different technique or something, because uh, they, I don't know, they, they take me forever. He has a system that just works and just economically just kind of speeds through, you know? But I guess, I don't know, I spend a long time looking at stuff over and over and over again and just sitting there and just like watching it go through like 50 60 times and and just thinking like it seems like a lot of time potentially wasted that i i could be thinking well it's good enough nobody would see whatever little micro change i'm going to do and then move on and get to the next thing but i can't help myself you know like i'm i'm looking for some little hiccup in the in the animation as crude as my stuff is there's still a certain pacing thing that I, I'm more interested in the pacing and timing than I am in executing fine-looking drawings. Right. You know, I think that's quite clear to yeah. anybody. <laughs> well, I think also good timing is, is such an important component of a successful film, especially if you right. want to be comedic or right. get yeah. a reaction from the audience. So in some respect... Yeah, a beautifully drawn film that the timing's a little off, mm. I think sinks it like crazy. I mean, not for everybody because some people, if it's beautifully crafted, they're on board. And stuff that I look at and I kind of go, okay, well, I'm, I'm looking at my watch and I'm just, not that everything has to be hyper speed, yeah. but sometimes if the moment hangs, just 
beyond what even a poetic amount would have sufficed. I don't know, it just like it loses me. And I just think if you had a better editor in there, you know, maybe the yeah. thing would have held together, be a tighter film. So you've had a, a quite long-standing relationship with the National Film Board over these four films. How was it that that relationship began? Well, I had gone to the film, I'd wanted to do a film board film. I was working in a animation studio in Winnipeg and um, I had heard through somebody that the film board would be very receptive to any of the animators working there uh, of approaching the film board to do a film. I, what I didn't realize at the time was the film board had just established an office, a western office there, uh, just only a couple of years prior. I thought they'd been there forever and because uh, I was just a young guy, like 17. And so eventually I put together a film about an old man and his cat and this adversarial situation in this house and I presented it so I went to the film board in Winnipeg and presented it to them this storyboard and they didn't really want to do it but uh, they did say well you've presented this story about an old man and his cat and we really want to do we love the idea of doing the cat came back which a local he was more than just local, he was kind of like this national touring troubadour style children's performer, you know, like that singing with a guitar yeah, to the kids. And type. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Raffi type uh, Fred Penner. So he made The Cat Came Back, which is actually a, by now, it's about a 130 year old American folk tune. And, but he had made it his signature tune. So they said, we don't want to do your storyboard, but would you like to take on and do The Cat Came Back? And so I wasn't about to, you know, get my back up over it and, and, uh, and not accept it. So I, I took that on and, uh, and they paired me up with the, the singer. But eventually I thought, well, I really need to do this my own way because he, he's got his way of doing it because he'd been singing it for so long. And I wanted to do a kind of a different style, so I asked if I could do it on my own, and they agreed. And which is remarkable, really, because I was just this young guy, and the children's entertainer was famous. And uh, so they allowed me to go ahead and do it my own way, and uh, so that kind of launched. And then that it became bigger than I ever thought it would ever be. That film that really launched my well, it certainly launched my commercial career because it was. That's why my second film took 10 years to finish because I had so much commercial work, just seven days a week, working nights as well, and just like it would, that went on for months and months and year after year. And, and, um, and then eventually I had to stop doing commercial work if I was ever going to do more than just one film. So, and then, so eventually I, I got to do Strange finish Strange Invaders. Of the original story of the old man and the cat, were there elements of that that were able to sort of be used for the... Specific the elements? Probably not. There's certainly serendipity, though, uh -huh. that, that I happened to pitch this thing and they wanted to do that, and it was just sort of felt like almost fated, you know? <laughs> and it just worked out really nicely for me. So that was back in 88. But it's funny, you, n you never know what you have, you know, because... 
I finished CAD, came back, and then I remember at the time in the Winnipeg office, the executive producer said, hey, you know, Cordell's film, like I had it on double system on a Steenbeck, so it was just sort of not the full soundtrack and the, and the picture running, you know, film separate from the, the track, the soundtrack. And I just, I was really shy back then. And all these people crowded in around me. I didn't even look around to see who was there. And I just played it. And then it went to the end. And then I just heard people just kind of leave the room. And it was just like, sort of like, I remember, I remember clearly that sort of sense of like, oh, crap. Nobody likes it. It was like dead in the water. So it wasn't until I went to a film festival that you get any any kind of reaction. So, so that, was the, that was the version of the film that didn't end up doing so well? Yeah. Why do you think, like, in that context, it didn't get the... I think it's just within a professional environment, like like with peers, and that they're just a little more ruthless. That's that's my slant on it. And, and a, a similar incident happened when it was pretty close to about the same point. At the studio that was shooting it, you know, we had an assembly up on the Steenbeck. So an animator friend of mine was was there in town, and uh, and so the studio, the guy who owned the studio, he said, "Hey, you want to come over and see Cordell's film?" And played it, and then my friend at the end of it just kind of went, "Huh," and then just walked away. <laughs> and so again, it was kind of like, "Wow." So. When I went to my first festival, I was just expecting just a blank, flat reaction. So that was my first moment of feeling like that there was something there. And uh, so it's just weird, you know? I guess it's just peers. Peers are rough. Yeah. Peers are a tough room. <laughs> I probably, yeah, I, occasionally family as well. Like oh, daughter. yes. Yes. I mean, not immediate family, but like aunts and uncles or something like that. I had a, a student <laughs> film many, many years ago that did okay. Um, but like little home screenings of that could go very badly. Oh, yeah. But yet you go to a festival with all these strangers and people are laughing. And it is bizarre. It, it is yeah. bizarre. Yeah, I had the same incident with, with Runaway and I had relatives were over. So it was quite a few relatives and unbeknownst to me, my wife had brought out the disc and said, "Hey, do you want to watch it?" And they, it was too late for me to to stop the thing, and and they all went downstairs, and then they they finished watching it, and it was just like blank, you just like zero reaction, and I was just like never again. So, you know, in fact, going home, there's some friends we're gonna be having supper with them, and they even suggested like, yeah, when you get back, we'll uh, we're gonna have a Coral Barker screening night, and we're gonna show your films, and uh, I just like. Hey, have fun, because I'm not showing up. <laughs> so thank you to Cordell Barker for taking the time during uh, the production of If I Was God, for which played at Annecy. Rather bizarrely not in competition, but then Annecy does have a bit of a tradition of putting some fabulous work out of competition. Mm. And some stuff not even getting selected at all that goes on to do fabulously well. I would expect that this film, if I was God, should have a bright future ahead of it in terms of further festival inclusion, just because it's doing stuff that ought to be seen. It's a celebration of animation in the way that the best short films are. A comparison that a couple of people have sort of drawn, it's sort of Tim Burton-esque in a sense, the dissection scenario, mm. 
he himself kind of noted that around the time he had sort of started working at Frankenweenie had just come out, and so he was a little worried that it was going to you know have some parallels to that. And as it turns out, it didn't really at all. It's not that it reminds you of Tim Burton; it reminds you of the feeling you used to get when you watched old Tim Burton films. Yeah, those wonderful little um, stop motiony bits, and not even Nightmare Before Christmas, but like stuff in Beetlejuice uh, or Pee Wee. The kind of pleasant uncomfortableness of stop motion mm. in a way i had forgotten just how much like stop motion was in beetlejuice oh yeah it was on not that long ago but it's, it's really got lots of lovely little vignettes in it i had completely forgotten the bit where they um make sort of horror masks of their own faces do you remember that bit yeah where the stretch yeah and then, yeah well i know she stretches her face and what does he do with his is pull his back or something yeah, they both kind of stretch out their face and kind of make sort of Halloween masky type things, but just out of their own skin. I remember her looking like Spy versus Spy or something like that. And then, of course, there's Large Marge from <laughs> Pee-wee, who I still have issues with all these podcasts later. Is <laughs> it incredibly, um, when it comes to practical filmmaking, Tim Burton is very up on that, isn't he? Mm. I mean, is, isn't he? Is I would not use the present tense. Oh, no, no, no. If I was going to be a little uh, brutal about it, I kind of feel like there was a period, certainly in his earlier days as a filmmaker, where he, he was absolutely... Yeah. He's unfortunately abandoned that for, for CG, as he did it with Mars Attacks, I think, where he started that. Because uh, I think originally they were all going to be stop-motion, the aliens, in Mars yeah. Attacks, which I think would have... Ah, man, would have been a lot better. It's going to be... Uh... McKinnon Saunders, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It was going to be. I think it was going to be Barry Purvis. So maybe that was the turning point. Maybe that was where he zigged where he should have zagged. Maybe. How cool would it have been? And maybe just people wouldn't have embraced it. But like, like a Tim Burton version of Alice in Wonderland that had that kind of Beetlejuice aesthetic. Ooh, yeah, yeah. With little stop motion, like Ray Harryhausen esque monsters, and you know stuff that really was playful and inventive like that, as opposed to. The version that we sort of ended up with. Yeah, so like the Jabberwocky, it's like, oh, he's, he's kind of got a weird face. Oh, he, he's got purple blood. It's because mm. you're kind of taken out of the... Because it's CG, but if he was maybe stop motion and erratic and, you know, everything that, that's brilliant about stop motion monsters m- may have been sort of a little bit... Yeah. There's a guy who um, did that old Alice in Wonderland video game that was like the really kind of dark Return to Oz-esque take on Alice in Wonderland. Mm. He's been doing some like animated little short films, and I'm quite interested to see those. And it's again about Alice in Wonderland, but like a sort of version of Alice in Wonderland that's sort of through this filter of, you know, what if she's like a crazy lady and Wonderland is all like the sort of machinations of her needing her meds mm. kind of thing. You know, and I, I wonder what that will look at. I mean, I, in my head, it's a great idea. Yeah. And the, it's going to be bril- a brilliant animated little sort of mini-series. I think it's a bit like how they did those like mini-animations for The Matrix. Oh, yeah, yeah, Animatrix, yeah. But it's, still, it's, it's a little ways off from actually being released or being revealed, but uh, I'm quite intrigued by that. Because, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a letdown, the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland. I have no idea, by the way, if, if someone like a Cordell Barker would ever sort of do like a feature film. But based on this film, based on If I Was God, I'd, I'd really love to see something using that kind of marriage of mediums that to me would be a kind of shot in the arm for stop motion cinema here's a question have the nfb ever made an animated feature i don't believe they have they've made some very long animated films they've made, they've made live action i think that i mean maybe some of them could have technically been classified as features 
Because by some definitions, it's over 45 minutes. It's over 40 minutes or something. But no, I think that in general, it's it's more sort of contributing to the culture of short form cinema. Mm-hmm. But I may be absolutely completely wrong. So yeah, the, the NFB making amazing films as, as per usual, Ben. And uh, there's plenty more to come from that neck of the woods. We've had a little look at some of the films uh, on the horizon that are sure to get some festival debuts. Uh, in the near future. Another NFB film worth checking out is uh, Carface, is the English title, by Claude Cloutier, who did Sleeping Betty. I'm not like a big sort of auto-mechanic aficionado. That being said, this film makes a hell of a case for it, because it's such a wonderfully rendered, animated musical number that mainly deals with the structure of cars and car mechanics, and uh, then as it goes on, becomes a bit of a parable about big oil and stuff like that. And it's a really nice sort of version of K Sarah Sarah is the uh, music choice for it. And it's it's kind of bizarre, but it, it works really well. You can check out an interview with Claude Cloutier on Squiggly from uh, not that long ago. So uh, you won't have to uh, dig too far into the interview archives. As it has been quite a while since the last podcast, and maybe if people haven't dipped into the site, there are a couple of other sort of features and things worth mentioning, apart from the stuff that we brought up already, uh, such as the Annecy and Edinburgh coverage and a few of the other interviews. There's a whole bunch of new Lightbox videos on top of the Cordell Barker one I mentioned before. Uh, we have stuff with Peter Lord, Greg McLeod, uh, Adam Elliott coming up, and quite a few in the wings. So if you want to subscribe to the YouTube channel or just keep an eye on the Twitter or Squiggly, uh, you won't have to wait long for another animated mini documentary. It's an enjoyable kind of thing to put together. And there's hours now, absolute hours worth of uh, interviews with with people in the industry, both uh, feature film directors and uh, short film directors. It's a great scope. It's a great series. Actually, we're at a point now where there's been so many where there are thematic playlists that you could browse through. If you fancy, if you just want to look at documentaries on women animators or documentaries on stop motion animation or British animation or NFB animation, there's now sort of enough of of each or feature film animation TV series. There's enough in each sort of category that they have their own sort of subsection. So have a little uh, sniff around the YouTube channel and uh, bookmark some links, why don't you? These things should hopefully continue to grow, and we'll have a lovely little uh, archive of these sort of mini video resources for people down the line. Some other film reviews as well as, um, uh, well, we had mentioned uh, Minions and Mune and some of the other ones that played at Annecy. Uh, Moomins on the Riviera, that was a quiet little release from the uh, indefatigable Moomin franchise that uh, apparently was rather good. So if you like your Moomins and weren't aware of that one, you can have a little read of that review and... Maybe uh, maybe give it a look-see. Um, and uh, as always, we have these short filmmaker interviews and uh, little sort of features on upcoming projects. A recently released uh, film online is Alan Holly's Coda, which I believe is part of the, uh, well, has been part of the This Is Not A Cartoon screenings. Uh, mm-hmm. Deservedly so. It's, it's probably one of the best films of the last two years. We have an interview with him giving us some insight into the making of that film, which is, is really quite spectacular as a little film. So now it's online. Uh, definitely check it out. It's been the talk of the online like video and animation communities of late. Mm-hmm. Staff picked and, and pick of the month and pick of the day and pick of the week everywhere. It's really something else. It certainly went down really well at uh, This Is Not A Cartoon uh, Program 1, which is now finished. Uh, we had a, our a final screening of, of uh, Program 1 uh, a couple of weeks ago on, uh, at home, the, uh, the, the new venue in Manchester, and it was sold out. 
uh, it was with a Q&A with uh, uh, Daniel Greaves talking about Mr. Plastic Mime. So that's been quite successful. So if you want to check out thisisnotacartoon.com after you've checked out everything on Squiggly, um, you can find out more about uh, upcoming screenings uh, and uh, director's interviews and everything else that we're working out for Program 2 of This Is Not a Cartoon. I think in the last podcast, the uh, Manchester Festival hadn't been announced. No, no. It's been a couple of months now. It might be worth talking about that a bit. Yeah. So it's exciting that animated short films are returning to cinema screens in the UK, which has been uh, a welcome return, really, because uh, of the the sort of decline of uh, animation-only festivals in the UK, which seems to be kind of turning around with... Um, the launch of the Manchester Animation Festival, which was top secret when we recorded the last podcast, but we can finally talk about it now. As we've launched uh, the website, which is manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk, it's going to be a, um, a, a competition screening, as well as um, national guests, international guests, uh, retrospectives, there'll be feature screenings, um, and then networking events and, you know, maybe the squiggly quiz or bits and pieces like that. Everything, you know, hopefully that people want from an animation festival or a place to, uh, for a community to gather together and celebrate animation. And we're, we're now looking for short films which people can enter for free on the website. Um, and all they'll need really is a, a Vimeo link and it can be password protected as well or a, or a YouTube link or, or some link to the film online. Um, and the competition is open for submissions until the 15th of August. Something that I've uh, noticed about the the culture of film festivals that's changed drastically. A is like, we had definitely talked about it, certainly from our perspective, like the, the UK film festival scene being on the decline. I hadn't been sort of actively sending stuff out to film festivals until quite recently, for about three years since the last film that I really kind of put out there. And as I've been kind of getting back into it and I'm going through the spreadsheet and all the film festivals that, you know, have existed over the years and so many of them just aren't there anymore. Mm. And it actually was a little chilling. Like, oh my God, like this is, this is, you know, stuff that you just sort of assume is going to be around forever all over the world. It is drying up. It isn't just a UK thing. So any new festivals and any uh, resurgences of festivals, anything that uh, will, you know, rise from the ashes and, and, and make a good go of it, absolutely needs to be kind of uh, cherished. And if you have a new film, uh, if you have a new idea, if you have something that uh, is festival-worthy in your mind, it may very well be festival-worthy in the minds and the eyes of festival curators. So don't dilly-dally. This is the other thing also. It's so easy now to send in stuff to festivals. Mm. When I was a young and Steve, settle down, folks, because we're going down memory lane with boring old Uncle Ben. Many, many moons ago, those three, four years ago, when I was still sending stuff to festivals, you had to burn the f***ing DVDs. You had to print out the customs labels. Sometimes they'd make you do a separate CD-ROM with, like, the synopsis and the photograph. What? And, like, the subtitle tracks on it. You couldn't just email that shit over. It was ridiculous. It would take up, like, 20 megabytes of an entire CD. It was so, like, arbitrary and, like, needlessly. And having to pay the postage on top of all of it, and then, you know, the pain in the arse of going to the post office, and 
maybe you know you'd dated the woman who worked behind the till a few years before and it was a little awkward but it was pretty much next door and the only other nearest post office was 20 minutes the other direction and so you just kind of have to brave it and avoid eye contact but it's hard to avoid eye contact when you've got 20 parcels and each one needs a new customs label because you can't just write out a whole bunch of them in one go each country has their own customs parameters so anyone who's experienced that will know that today festival submission is a much easier process for the most part you can do it through secondary websites that list all the festivals that they're partnered with uh you fill in a form once and you're ready to go even if you don't have to do that just filling in your film info at each individual festival it takes like a few minutes at a time and you don't have to worry about burning anything or packaging anything or customs labeling anything or weighing anything or, you know, converting things to digi-beta. That was another one. What the <laughs> f***, Steve? Now, from your description, I, I gather that math is as a, a streamlined and very simple submission process. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like three pages on a website, basically. So people have got until the 15th of August to submit their work to the Manchester Animation Festival, and they can do at manchesteranimationfestival.co.uk. I'm very excited to be a part of that because I'm working together with um, my, my, some of the team from the Bradford Animation Festival. Obviously, Bradford not happening this year as they uh, continue to review their festival package. But um, this this year, certainly at, at Manchester, I'll be working with Deb Singleton, who was the director of the uh, Bradford Animation Festival for years, and she was part of the team there for 11 years. Um, Jen Hall, who uh, programmed the festival for five years and used to work for the film team. And um, Bill Lawrence, who founded the Bradford Animation Festival uh, 24 years ago, something like that, and the um, Bradford International uh, Film Festival. So, yeah, all these people propping me up, <laughs> doing all the hard work. Yeah, it's a good position to be in. It's not a bad one, yeah. So uh, we've, we've some very exciting developments. I'm really looking forward to announcing on um, the sort of maybe upcoming editions of the podcast and um obviously for for any news um you can check out squiggly.co.uk or keep your eye on the manchester animation uh, festival facebook page which is facebook.com slash manchester animation festival or the twitter page at mcr animation So, Ben, 30 podcasts in. Uh, are you still enjoying doing it as much as I am? There's nothing I enjoy more Good. than uh, bringing the animation industry to eager listeners, knowing they're listening to our sultry voices, earbuds in, lights off, and so forth. Uh, we'd like to thank our guests for appearing on this month's podcast. So thank you very much to the fantastic Cordell Barker. You can find Cordell's back catalogue and more about his film, If I Was God at nfb.ca and then just search Cordell Barker in the search bar there. I would like to thank Adam Elliott for telling us more about his brand new film Ernie Biscuit. If you want to find out more about Adam and his work you can visit adamelliott.com.au and we'd like to thank the director of Song of the Sea which is in cinemas now uh, Mr Tom Moore. So if you want to find out more about the work of Cartoon Saloon and a little bit more about Song of the Sea and Tom, you can visit cartoonsaloon.ie. We'd like to thank our interviewers, Julia Young and Laura Beth Cowley, for contributing to this podcast. And we're on Twitter, at Squiggly, S-K-W-I-G-L-Y. 
And uh, facebook.com forward slash squiggly magazine. The Squiggly Podcast is presented by Steve Henderson and Ben Mitchell with music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. It's produced and edited by Ben Mitchell. Don't forget for all the latest news reviews, interviews, videos and a whole lot more from the world of animation, visit squiggly.com. Squiggly.